With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dave Cullen, University of Colorado graduate and award-winning journalist, presents a comprehensive account of the shootings at Columbine on the 10th anniversary of the mass murders. This program taped at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books is about 45 minutes. Dave Cullen, who are Eric and Dylan? Eric and Dylan were the two killers at Columbine. And Eric was a psychopath and Dylan was not. They were completely different people. And, you know, as I, I spent 10 years on this book, and the question I get asked the most often is why did they do it? And it took me about a year to figure out that that's really the wrong question and leads us in the wrong direction because there's, there's Eric and why he did it, and there's Dylan, and they're completely different people. So do you want to talk about each one of them? Okay, so Eric was a psychopath, classic. Eric Harris. Eric Harris, yes, and he was the mastermind of, of the plot. And he spent a couple years trying to figure out how he could destroy the entire world. That was his real fantasy as a 16-year-old boy. Wipe out humanity, uh, always to leave three or four or five people. Because to a psychopath, the power of life as well as death makes them all more powerful. A god can give life as well as take it away. And psychopaths are not delusional where they think they're God, but they're as if they're as important as God, and it's referred to as a messiah complex. But the key thing with a psychopath is uh, no compassion, no empathy, no regard for the welfare of others for anything. Um, typically they're nonviolent because it's just about meeting their own needs. So you see them as white-collar criminals, Ponzi schemes, con men, frequently crooked politicians. You might be able to think of a few recent ones that come to mind. Um, that's a classic psychopath. Someone who would destroy other people's lives, destroy a state or a country for the most trivial gain on their own part. So that's a psychopath, typically nonviolent. But when the person has a sadistic streak too, then you typically get uh, a Ted Bundy, a Jeffrey Dahmer, or an Eric Harris. So that's the mold he comes from. Then do you want to talk about Dylan? Uh, Dylan is completely different. Dylan Klebold. Dylan Klebold. Yeah, polar opposite. Polar opposite personalities. And uh, Dylan went along with the plan, but he was not driving it. And when you look at their journals, Eric's journal is filled with hate, hate, hate all the way through. Uh, it starts out, I'll clean up one word, but the opening line is, I hate the effing world. And it's hate on every page. He started out wanting to kill and he ended up killing over the course of a year. But with Dylan, it's completely different. He spent two years, Dylan spent two years doing his, writing his journal, and the most common word in his journal is love. It's, it, it's completely unexpected. To me, Dylan was the revelation in this case. He was a loving, sensitive boy with a whole lot of anger, but his anger was mostly directed inward. It was all angry at himself for being such a loser, such an outcast, he wasn't. It was objectively untrue, but that's how he saw it. And Dylan tried so hard loving the world and felt that the world wasn't loving him back. 
in gradually, he takes a really slow evolution. He, he wasn't oppressive. He, he's easily diagnosed as a classic adolescent diagnosis, but that doesn't really tell you enough. The interesting thing is watching for two years how this kid, who looks like he would never kill, under the influence of Eric Harris, gradually turns that anger that's turned inward out of the rest of the world. And instead of blaming me, it's blaming all the rest of you people did this to me, and I'm going to take a lot of you with me and show you on the way out. And so Dylan still committed suicide, but took a lot of people with him. In your book, Columbine, you write, Dylan's mind raced night and day, analyzing, inventing, deconstructing. He was 15. He had tagged along on the missions. He was Eric's number one go-to guy, and none of that mattered. What were the missions? Well, the missions were, they were a really early symptom of something going awry. Um, their sophomore year, Eric and Dylan started just doing these, they were just pranks. But Eric called them the missions because he was grandiose about everything. Um, he saw them as this, this big thing where we were showing, you know, people how great we were. They were just shooting off firecrackers, soaping up windows, egging houses. Then they got a little nastier, like super gluing mailboxes shut um, and so forth. And what's interesting to me about the missions is that you see a progression with Eric going from petty vandal to petty thief to uh, felony theft to murder. He didn't just start out a mass murder. He had his own gradual criminal uh, progression where if he hadn't done something like Columbine, it's pretty clear he would have become a career criminal of some sort. Uh, but he had that sadistic streak. So he wanted to kill people for very simple reasons, for, for his own aggrandizement and because he enjoyed it. He, he wanted to have fun and he, he wanted to show us. Uh, it's, you know, I would say it's um, understanding a psychopath it doesn't take a whole lot to understand what one is. It's a fairly simple complex. It's hard to believe that it's true, that somebody will kill some someone. Kill You wanted to kill hundreds of people, but will do that for, for the most petty gain to himself. That, that was enough. April 20th, 1999 was the date of Columbine, the massacre at the high school there. Yes. But Eric started planning this in 1997. Yes, yes. How did you discover that? Well, they, they, kept, they kept lots of records. Um, eventually, after a seven-year legal battle, uh, Jefferson County, or Jeffco, released nearly a thousand pages of writings that the killers left. They each left a journal. Uh, they left school assignments. Uh, also, Eric wrote on his website about all he wanted to do. And then they made videotapes explaining themselves. In the last month, they decided that wasn't enough. So uh, the FBI agent in the case, who's sort of a major character, in the book, sort of the unwinding of the detec detective story, he said that in his, FBI, his name? Uh, supervisory special agent Dwayne Fusillet, uh, very famous Hoshin negotiator, brilliant psychologist, uh, who, in an odd coincidence, happened to be uh, take over the case. Um, but he said in his entire FBI career, he'd never seen a killer who, who died leave this much material explaining themselves. So we have an extraordinary amount of information to gather. And then I spent the last several years sort of digging through all this information and, and talking with various psychiatrists and psychologists that the FBI brought in the case to understand them. It's, it's very clear cut once you got through the information. It's, it's, it's hard to make up their handwriting. It, it, it took quite a while to sort of um, be able to decipher what they were doing. 
Once you understand their psychological condition, it's a lot easier to understand them too. You really have to understand what a psychopath is and how they tick to really understand how to interpret Eric. So it doesn't just sound like the rabies, because he, he follows a very classic pattern. Did Wayne and Kathy Harris recognize that Eric was in trouble? That he was in trouble, I, I said that he, and that he got in trouble, they had no idea the extent of trouble. And almost nobody recognizes a psychopath. If you think about somebody like Hannibal Lecter, you have to really throw up a Hollywood version because a psychopath is never going to tell you that they're going to eat your liver. You would be the last person in the world to know they're a psychopath. The first classic book on psychopathy that was published in the 1930s by Dr. Herbie Cleckley, he titled the book The Mask of Sanity because... There, there are two clusters of characteristics of a psychopath. One is their total lack of empathy, their lack of compassion for everybody, uh, for anyone. But the correctly decided the even more important characteristics was the ability to disguise that lack of empathy, as if wearing a mask. Psychopaths are nearly always charming. They're the people we turn to to trust. Uh, after we're in bankruptcy court or divorce court, they're the person, the person you turn to for help that is most likely the psychopath. That's how good they are. So parents never recognize they have a psychopath in the house. And the Harris parents knew that Eric was acting out, that he'd gotten in trouble sometimes. They, they were having him see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist put him on Zoloft. That wasn't strong enough. They put him on Luvox. Uh, they, they disciplined him strongly. So they knew they had a kid acting out, but they had, they had no idea what. And, and I want to throw out one other idea uh, for, for people to consider. Eric was gobbling up uh, Shakespeare, writing papers on uh, King Lear and Macbeth, uh, Tessa de Urbevilles, uh, Euripides, and he would write the most amazing apologies. So, picture you've got a kid, he acts up, sometimes he gets in trouble, and then when he explains himself, he shows deep, utter remorse, he quotes Shakespeare in, you know, when he's talking to, and, and how, you know, in King Lear he learned a similar thing there. You will give a kid like that a lot of latitude. you got a brilliant kid who seems to be just doing really well. Sometimes he gets in trouble, he acts up. So they knew they had a problem, child, but what kind of parent thinks, God, he acts out sometimes. I, I wonder if he's considering mass murder. Did Sue and Tom Klebold recognize anything in Dylan? They recognized depression. They knew that he was depressed. They had no idea how bad it was, that it was that extreme. They didn't know that he was suicidal. He talked for two years in his journal about, about suicide. Um, they also knew that they had a really shy kid and that he had been shy since he'd been a little kid, painfully shy. And when he went to high school, he felt like a fish out of water. He had been in a gifted program in grade school, really enjoyed it there, spent years in a small cluster of kids where, where it was cool to be a brain. But he went to high school as, you know, 2000 uh, kids school um, and he felt he felt uh, awkward there. He didn't talk to people right away until he got to know them. So they knew he was struggling, but they had, they had no idea it was that bad. He's like a lot of teenage kids. Which I think that's kind of the scary thing about Columbine is that Dylan Klebold was such a typical high school kid. And if a kid like that who gets involved with an Eric Harris, that could happen in any high school in America. What about the Harrises and the Klebolds? The Harrisons and the Klebolds. Uh, the Klebolds are still in the same house they lived in. Um, the Harrises stayed for many years in that house and then sold it. And 
Truthfully, I'm not sure where they are. They've kept an extremely low profile. I've never spoken to a single journalist, and I've heard they're still in the area, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, by all accounts, those families had a difficult time. I've, I have frankly uh, spoken to many people who are much closer to the Klebolds. And but you did not speak to the Klebolds? No. No, the Klebolds have only talked to David Brooks one time, uh, five years out, and never again to any other journalist. The Harrises have spoken to no one. But I've talked to people who are close to the Klebolds. Um, they had a really rough time. They, they lost a son, too. And they also had a mass murderer in their house. And, um, of course, that, that's terrible for them. And they were taken by surprise. So they were sort of grieving two different ways. The pastor referred to them early on as the two loneliest people in the world. Because, you know, unless you think of the parents of, you know, Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or someone like that, they don't have anyone who understands what they're going through. Um, they're in uncharted territory. Jeff Dahmer got two mentions. Did you hear that? Context of white supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, May 18, 2023. So I have been told this is our third study session on Dave Cullen's Columbine. We are picking up chapter 15. Uh, that was the author uh, for our book club. Uh, I always enjoy uh, including different interviews and segments where we can hear directly from the author to get additional insight uh, from the person who put this project together. We had so many people uh, who commented astutely, I thought, uh, about the tone and word choice of the author. This is from a 2009 interview, same year that this book was published. I will only give two quick thoughts. Number one, <laughs> again, we got two mentions of Jeffrey Dahmer explaining a psycho man, second time we go to have a discussion on the wisdom of psychopaths and Jeff Dahmer is mentioned Kevin Dutton did the same thing gee whiz and all of this is way before the uh, Netflix mega hit and all the rest of it and then Charles Manson too of course got tons of white serial killer cannibals all the rest of it but he also included Anthony Hopkins he said you have to go Hollywood almost to explain the dastardliness of all of this now I'm thinking really the people the white people that you just named would seem to qualify but dang we gotta think of oh <laughs> a serial killer Anthony Hopkins Silence of the Lambs, and that's a, once again, white cannibal. White culture, through and through. Anthony Hopkins won an Academy Award for Hannibal Lecter. You can even think on that if we want to think about entertainment for the 90s. Films that won for an Academy Award or Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins for playing a white serial killer cannibal. Yup. Pulp Fiction, I don't even remember how many nominations they got for killing a black male and throwing his body in the trunk from Quentin Tarantino and good old Henry Weinstein convict 
Reservoir Dogs, Natural Born Killers, which I think is going to come up here with Pulp Fiction. Yup, tore off the Academy Awards. Did Denzel Washington win for Catherine Massey Book Club? Context of White Supremacy, audio segment one. Fifteen. First assumption. An investigative team had assembled before noon. Kate Batten was named lead investigator. Batten already knew who her primary suspects were. Most of the students were perplexed about who was attacking them, but quite a few had recognized the gunman. Two names had been repeated over and over. Batten quickly compiled dossiers on Eric and Dylan in the command post trailer in Clement Park. She dispatched teams to secure their homes. Detectives arrived at the Harris place at 1.15, just as the third SWAT team burst into the Columbine teacher's lounge. Eric's parents had gotten word and were already home. The cops found them uncooperative. They tried to refuse entrance. The cops insisted. Kathy Harris got scared when they headed for the basement. I don't want you going down there, she said. They said they were securing the residence and removing everyone. Wayne said he doubted Eric was involved, but would help if there was an active situation. Kathy's twin sister was with her. Wayne and Kathy were concerned about the repercussions, she explained. Parents of the victims might retaliate. The cops smelled gas. They had the utility company shut off power, then resumed the search. In Eric's room, they found a sawed-off shotgun barrel on a bookshelf, unspent ammunition on the bed, fingertips cut off gloves on the floor, and fireworks and bomb materials on the desk, the dresser, the windowsill, and the wall, among other places. Elsewhere, they discovered a page from the anarchist cookbook, packaging for a new gas can, and scattered glass shards on a slab in the backyard. An evidence specialist arrived that night and spent four hours shooting seven rolls of film. He left at 1 a.m. The Klebolds were much more forthcoming. A police report described Tom as very communicative. He gave a full account of Dylan's past and laid out all his friendships. Dylan had been in good spirits, Tom said. Sue described him as extremely happy. Tom was anti-gun, and Dylan agreed with him on that. They wouldn't find any guns or explosives in the house. That was for sure, Tom said. The cops did find pipe bombs. Tom was shocked. Dylan was fine, he insisted. He and Dylan were close. He would have known it if anything was up. The first FBI agent on the scene at Columbine was Supervisory Special Agent Dwayne Fusillet. He had shaken the Cajun accent on everything but his name. Fuse Allay, he said. Everyone got it wrong. He was a veteran agent, a clinical psychologist, a terrorism expert, and one of the leading hostage negotiators in the country. None of that led Dr. Fuselay to Columbine High. His wife had called. Their son was in the school. Fuselay got the call in the cafeteria of Denver's Rogers Federal Building, a downtown high-rise 30 minutes away. He was sipping a bowl of bland soup, low salt, for his hypertension. The bowl stayed on the table. When he got to his Dodge Intrepid, Fusillet swiped his arm under the seat, groping for the portable police light. He hadn't pulled it out in years. Fusillet headed toward the foothills. He would offer his services as a hostage negotiator, or anything else they might need. He wasn't sure how his offer would be received. 
Cops in crisis tend to be thrilled to have a trained negotiator, but wary of the feds. Hardly anyone likes the FBI. Fusilier didn't blame them. Federal agents generally have a high opinion of themselves. Few try to conceal it. Fusilier didn't look like a fed or sound the part. He was a shrink-turned-hostage-negotiator-turned-detective with an abridged version of the complete works of Shakespeare in the back seat of his car. He didn't talk past the local cops, roll his eyes, or humor them. There was no swagger in his shoulders or his speech. He could be a little stoic. Hugging his sons felt awkward, but he would reach out to embrace survivors when they needed it. Smiling came easy. His jokes were frequently at his own expense. He genuinely liked local cops and appreciated what they had to offer. They liked him. A stint on the domestic terrorism task force for the region proved fortuitous. It was a joint operation between local agencies and the FBI. Fusilier led the unit, and a senior Jeffco detective worked on his team. The detective was one of Fusilier's first calls. He was relieved to hear that Duane was on his way and offered to introduce him to the commanders on arrival. The detective brought Fusilier up to speed before he arrived at the school. There were reports of six or eight gunmen in black masks and military gear shooting everyone. He assumed it was a terrorist attack. It took a certain voice to talk down a gunman. Agent Fusilier was always gentle and reassuring. No matter how erratic the subject's behavior, Fusilier always responded calmly. He exuded tranquility, offered a way out. He trained negotiators to read a subject quickly, to size up his primary motivations. Was the gunman driven by anger, fear, or resentment? Was he on a power trip? Was the assault meant to feed his ego? Or was he caught up in events beyond his control? Getting the gun down was primarily a matter of listening. The first thing Fusilier taught negotiators was to classify the situation as hostage or non-hostage. To laymen, humans at gunpoint equaled hostages. Not so. An FBI field manual citing Fusilier's research spelled out the crucial distinction. Hostages are a means to fulfill demands. The primary goal is not to harm the hostages, the manual said. In fact, Hostage-takers realize that only through keeping the hostages alive can they hope to achieve their goals. They act rationally. Non-hostage gunmen do not. The humans mean nothing to them. These individuals act in an emotional, senseless, and often self-destructive way. They typically issue no demands. What they want is what they already have, the victim. The potential for homicide followed by suicide in many of these cases is very high. Jeffco officials had labeled Columbine a hostage standoff. Every media outlet was reporting it that way. Dr. Fusilier considered the chances of that remote. What he was driving toward was much worse. To the FBI, the non-hostage distinction is critical. The Bureau recommends radically different strategies in those cases, essentially the opposite approach. With hostages, negotiators remain highly visible, make the gunmen work for everything, and firmly establish that the police are in control. In non-hostage situations, they keep a low profile, give a little without getting in return, for example, offering cigarettes to build rapport, 
and avoid even a slight implication that anyone but the gunman is in control. The goal with hostages is to gradually lower expectations. In non-hostage crises, it's to lower emotions. One of the first things Fusilier did when he arrived was organize a negotiation team. He found local officers he had trained, and fellow FBI negotiators responded as well. A neighboring county loaned them a section of its mobile command post, already on scene. The 911 operators were instructed to put through to the team all calls from kids inside the building. Anything they could learn about the gunman might be useful. They passed on logistical information they gathered to the tactical teams. The team was confident they could talk the gunman down. All they needed was someone to speak to. Fusilet shuttled between the negotiations center and the Jeffco command post, coordinating the federal response. When things calmed down momentarily, Fusilet pitched in questioning students who had just escaped the school. He walked over to the triage unit and flipped through the logs. They had evaluated hundreds of kids. He scanned for kids he knew from the neighborhood or the boys' soccer teams. Everyone he recognized said, evaluated and released. He called their parents as soon as he got a break. His son's name never came up. Agent Fusilet was grateful to have his hands full. I had work to do, he said later. I compartmentalized. Focusing on that kept me from wondering about Brian. Mimi checked in regularly, so Duane didn't have to. She had gotten to Leewood, and she had seen a lot of kids. No one had spotted Brian. No one had heard a word. An attack of this magnitude suggested a large conspiracy. Everyone, including detectives, assumed a substantial number were involved. The first break in the presumed conspiracy seemed to come early. The killer's good friend, Chris Morris, reported himself to 911. He had seen the news on TV while he was home playing Nintendo with another friend. At first, he was worried about his girlfriend, and his Nintendo buddy's dad was a science teacher in the building. The two boys hopped in the car and raced around, trying to find Chris's girlfriend. They kept running into police barricades and collecting scraps of information along the way. When he heard about the trench coats, Chris got scared. He knew Eric and Dylan had guns. He knew they had been messing with pipe bombs. For this? Chris called 911. He got disconnected. It took a few tries, but he told his story, and the dispatcher sent a patrol car by the house. The cops questioned him briefly, then decided to drive him out to the main team in Clement Park. There was a lot of confusion. Who was this kid? Chris Harris? A detective asked. Pretty soon he was surrounded by detectives. Cameramen noticed. TV crews came running. Chris looked the part. Squishy features, nerdy and overwhelmed. He had rosy cheeks, wire-rimmed glasses, and mussy light brown hair just past his ears. The cops cuffed him fast and got him into the back of a patrol car. By now, many of the killer's buddies suspected them. It was a scary time to be Eric's or Dylan's friend. From the outset, before they even had names or identities for the gunmen, TV reporters depicted the boys as a single entity. Were they loners? Reporters kept asking witnesses. Were they outcasts? Always they, and always the attributes fitting the school shooter profile, itself a myth. 
The witnesses nearly always concurred. Few knew the killers, but they did not volunteer that information, and they were not asked. Yeah, outcasts. I heard they were. Fusillet arrived at Columbine with one assumption. Multiple gunmen demanded multiple tactics. Fusillet couldn't afford to think of his adversaries as a unit. Strategies likely to disarm one shooter could infuriate the other. Mass murderers tended to work alone, but when they did pair up, they rarely chose their mirror image. Fusillet knew he was much more likely to find a pair of opposites holed up in that building. It was entirely possible that there was no single why, and much more likely that he would unravel one motive for Eric, another for Dylan. Reporters quickly keyed on the darker force behind the attack. This spooky trench-coat mafia, it grew more bizarre by the minute. In the first two hours, witnesses on CNN described the TCM as goths, gays, outcasts, and a street gang. A lot of the time, they'll, like, wear makeup and paint their nails and stuff, a Columbine senior said. They're kind of, I don't know, like goth, sort of, like, and they're, like, associated with death and violence a lot. None of that would prove to be true. That student did not, in fact, know the people he was describing. But the story grew. Sixteen. The Boy in the Window Danny Rohrbaugh had been second to die. As Eric was taking aim at him on the sidewalk, Danny's stepsister was in the building, headed toward him. Nicole Patrone had changed into her gym uniform while the bombs were being laid. It was a beautiful day, and her class was going outside to play softball. Just as Eric finished shooting at Deputy Gardner, the lead girls in Nicole's class turned the corner toward them. Mr. D. arrived in the hallway at the same moment, at the opposite end from the killers. He had just been alerted to the shooting and had come running to investigate. The girls had not been warned. Mr. D. spotted Dylan and Eric coming in the west doors and the girls blundering into their path. They were laughing and giggling and getting ready to walk right into it, he said. The killers fired. Bullets soared past the girls. The trophy case just behind Mr. D shattered. I assumed I was a dead man, he said. He ran straight into the gunfire, screaming at the girls to turn back. He herded them down a side hallway that dead-ended at the gym. It was locked. Mr. D had the key on a chain in his pocket, latched to dozens just like it. He had no idea what it looked like. I'm thinking, he's coming around the corner and we're trapped, DeAngelis said. If I don't get these doors open, we are trapped. A movie image zipped through his mind. A Nazi concentration camp with the guards shooting escapees in the back. We're just going to get mowed down as he comes around the corner, he thought. He reached in and grabbed the random key. It fit. He ushered the girls into the gym and scouted around for a hiding place. They could hear bombs and gunfire, and he could only imagine the hell going on outside. He spotted an inconspicuous door on the far wall. There was a storage room behind it, with cages piled with gym equipment. He unlocked the door and led them in. You're going to be fine, he told them. I'm not going to let anything happen to you, but I need to get us out of here. I'm going to shut the door behind me. You don't open that door for anyone. Then he had an idea. Why didn't they come up with a code word? Orange, someone suggested. No, 
"'Rebels,' another girl said. "'No. A few started quarreling about it. Mr. D. couldn't believe it. He burst out laughing. Girls started giggling. That broke the tension. For a moment.' He locked them in the storeroom, crossed the gym, creaked open the outside door, and poked his head out. I saw other kids coming out, and teachers, he said. Then a Jeffco sheriff. His car came over that embankment, flying. And I told some of the teachers, I have to go back in there. There are kids in there. So I told the police officer after he got out, and I explained. He said, you go in. Mr. D. brought Nicole's class back out to the same spot with the same cop, but by now he realized there were hundreds more still inside. I'm going, he began, but a deputy cut him off. No one's going back in. So Mr. D. led the class across a field over a series of minor obstacles. He stopped at a chain-link fence to boost them over. Other girls assisted from the far side. Let's go, girls, he said, over the fence. When the last girl was over, they ran across the field until they felt safe. Mr. D. found the command post and drew diagrams of the hallways for the SWAT teams. He also described what he had seen. He remembered a guy with a baseball cap turned backward. They kept saying these guys were in trench coats, Mr. D. recalled later. And I kept saying, these guys were not in trench coats. He had a baseball cap turned backwards. Eventually, Mr. D. headed to Leewood to be with the kids. He met his wife there, his brother, and a close friend. Tears streamed down everyone's cheeks, except Frank's. That was odd. Frank had always been the emotional one, but the first symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was already taking hold. He felt nothing. I was like a zombie, he said later. John and Kathy Ireland knew Patrick had a lunch, but he always ate out. John went looking for Patrick's car. He knew Patrick's spot. If the car was gone, his boy was safe. A deputy stopped him at the perimeter. Please, John begged. He promised not to walk as far as the school. If I can just get to the parking lot. Pleading was useless. John knew the neighborhood, so he tried another approach. That one was blocked, too. He headed back to Leewood. Kids kept pouring in there. Mostly the auditorium was filled with parents seeking kids, but there were also kids without parents. John saw several in tears. He chatted with them, and they perked up. John and Kathy were happy to see kids find their parents, but every reunion raised the odds their boy was in trouble. Somebody's kids were in those ambulances. John and Kathy refused to indulge in negative thoughts. I couldn't go to the place that Pat would have been hurt, Kathy said later. I absolutely felt confident that he was going to be okay. At least I wasn't going to speculate or waste energy on that. I just needed to find him. John found lots of Patrick's friends, but nobody had seen him. Who was he with? Why hadn't they called? Patrick had gone to the library to finish his stats homework. Four friends had joined him. None of them had called the Irelands because every one of them had been shot. Agent Dwayne Fusillet was also having no luck locating his son. Mimi had given up on the public library and had run over to Leewood. There were many more kids there, but none had seen Brian. Dwayne had access to a growing army of law enforcement, but it didn't do him a lick of good. Cops kept an ear out for word of Brian, but none came. Fusillet also had the advantage of knowing a great number of kids were alive and well in the building. He had spoken to many personally and continued picking their brains about the killers. 
He was one of the few parents aware of the full danger. Two bodies had been lying outside the cafeteria for hours. He didn't know they were Danny Rohrbach and Rachel Scott, but he knew they had not been moving, and then he heard the dispatch announcements indicating they were dead. Others described the one-bleeding-to-death sign in Science Room 3. Mimi monitored the stage at Leewood, where talk of death and murder were verboten. She scoured the sign-in sheets and worked the crowd. Duane checked in every fifteen minutes by cell, but did not mention the murders. She did not inquire. For ninety minutes of chaos, the gunmen seemed to be all over the school simultaneously. Then it quieted down. The killer still appeared to be roaming, firing at will, but the gunfire was sporadic now, and no one was staggering out wounded. The injured had reached the hospitals. It had taken an hour to get most of them out of the building, through the triage center, and into ambulances. Between 1 and 2.30 p.m., the injury count fluctuated between 8 and 18, depending upon which station you were watching. The numbers varied, but kept rising. A sheriff's spokesman announced that SWAT teams had spotted more students trapped in the building, lying on the floor, apparently injured. Suddenly, at 1.44 p.m., the cops finally nabbed someone. We've got three students with their hands up with two police cars around them, a reporter told CNN. Their hands are up. The cops detained them at gunpoint. Word spread quickly to the library. They surrendered, a woman screamed. It's over! They celebrated there briefly. The truth trickled back slowly. Just before 2.30, an officer riding along in a news chopper spotted somebody moving inside the library. He was just inside the blown-out windows, covered in blood, and behaving curiously, sagging against the frame, clearing away shards of glass. He was going to jump. The officer radioed a SWAT team. They read the Loomis-armored truck and raced toward the building. Hang on, kid, one of them called. We're coming to get you. Patrick Ireland was confused. He heard someone yell, but couldn't see anyone or figure out where the voices were coming from. He felt dizzy. His vision was blurry, and one big section was blank. He was unaware that blood was streaming down into his eyes. The shouting inside his head was more important. Get out! Get out! But the muddled outside yelling had caught his attention. Why were they talking so slowly? Everything was deep and mumbly, like his head was underwater. Where was he? Not sure. Something had happened. Something horrible. Shot? Get out! Get out! Hours earlier, Patrick Ireland had taken refuge under the table with his friends. Mackay and Dan were down there, and a girl he didn't know. Corey and Austin had gone to investigate and ended up somewhere unknown. Patrick put his head down and closed his eyes. The shooting was barely underway in the library when he heard Mackay moan. Patrick opened his eyes. Mackay's knee was bleeding. Patrick leaned over to administer pressure. The top of his head poked over the edge of the tabletop. Dylan saw him and fired the shotgun again. Patrick went blank. Patrick's skull had stopped several buckshot fragments. Other debris lodged in his scalp as well, probably wood splinters torn from the tabletop in the blast. One pellet got through. It burrowed six inches through spongy brain matter, entering through the scalp just above his hairline on the left and lodging near the middle rear. 
Bits of his optical center were missing. Most of his language capacity was wiped out. He regained consciousness, but words were hard to form and different to interpret as well. Pathways for all sorts of functions had been severed. Perception was impeded, so he couldn't tell when he was speaking gibberish or jumbling incoming sounds. The left brain controls the right side of the body, and the pellet cut through that connection. Patrick was paralyzed on the right side. He had been shot in the right foot. It was broken and bleeding. He didn't even know. He felt nothing on that side. Patrick drifted in and out. He was semi-conscious when the killers left the room. All the kids were running for the back exit. Mackay and Dan tried to get his attention. He returned a blank stare. Come on, man, one of them said. Let's go. It didn't register. They tried to drag him, but both had been shot in the legs and Patrick was limp. They got nowhere. The killers could return any moment. Eventually, they gave up and fled. Sometime later, Patrick woke up on the floor again. Get out! He tried to get out. Half his body refused. He couldn't stand. He couldn't even crawl right. He reached with his left hand, gripped something, and dragged himself forward. His useless side trailed behind. He made a little progress, and his brain gave out. He came to repeatedly and began again. No one knows how many times. A bloody trail revealed his convoluted path. He started less than two table lengths from the windows, but he headed off in the wrong direction. Then he hit obstacles, bodies, table legs, and chairs. Some he pushed away, others had to be maneuvered around. He kept heading for the light. If he could just make it to the windows, maybe someone would see him. If he had to, maybe he would jump. It took three hours to get there. He found an easy chair beside the opening. It was sturdy enough not to tip and might provide cover if the killers returned. He wedged his back against the short wall and worked himself upward, then grabbed hold of the chair for a final push. He propped himself against the girder between two large panes and rested a while to recover his strength. Then he flipped around. He had one more task before he took the plunge. The problem was that Patrick couldn't jump. There was a waist-high window ledge to get over. The best he could do was lean forward and tumble over it head-first onto the sidewalk. His gut would bear down on the sill as he rolled over it. It was a jagged mess. The gun blasts had blown out most of the glass, but left shards clinging around the frame. Patrick stood on one leg, braced his shoulder against the girder, and picked away the chunks with the same hand. He was meticulous. He didn't want to get hurt. That's when he heard the murky voices. Stay there. We're going to get you. The armored truck pulled up beneath the window. A squadron of SWAT officers leapt out. Nearby, teams provided cover from either side. One group took aim from behind a fire truck. Snipers sprawled on rooftops, trained their scopes from farther back. If this rescue mission was fired upon, they'd be ready. Patrick wasn't waiting. He thought he was. He remembers them calling, Okay, it's safe. Go ahead and jump. We'll catch you. The rescue team recalls it differently, and the video shows them scrambling into place. Patrick collapsed forward. The ledge caught him at the waist, and he folded in half, head dangling toward the ground. The SWAT team wasn't ready, but Patrick was frantic and didn't understand. He wiggled forward, but couldn't get much traction from the inside, because his feet were already up off the floor. 
A SWAT officer clambered up the side of the truck and threw his weapon to the ground. Another followed close behind him. As the first man hit the truck roof, Patrick kicked his good leg up toward the ceiling and reached down for the sidewalk with his arms. That nearly did it. One more thrust, and he would be free. The officers lunged toward him, and each man caught one of his hands. Patrick kicked again, completely vertical, and his hips pulled away from the frame. The officers clenched, and his hands barely moved. The rest of his body spun around like a gymnast, gripping the high bar, until he whacked into the side of the truck. The officers kept hold and eased him down onto the hood. He tried to break away, still desperate to flee. They lowered him down to other officers, but he kicked hard and his legs slammed against the ground. They pulled him upright, and he tried to climb into the front seat. The SWAT team was confused. What was he trying to do? They assumed he understood he was the patient. He did not. He had to get out of there. Here was a truck. He was ready to go. They got him to a triage site, and then straight into an ambulance. On the drive to St. Anthony Central Hospital, paramedics cut off Patrick's bloody clothes, everything but his undershorts. They removed his gold necklace with the water ski pendant. He had six dollars in his wallet. He was not wearing shoes. They confirmed gunshot wounds to his left forehead and his right foot, as well as a number of superficial wounds about his head. His elbow was lacerated. As they worked, they tested Patrick's mental acuity and tried to keep him conscious. Do you know where you are? Your name? Your birthday? Patrick could answer those questions slowly, laboriously. The answers were easy, but he struggled to form them into words. Most of his brain tissue was intact. Sections could function in isolation, but the connecting circuitry was confused. Patrick's brain was less successful forming new memories. He knew he had been shot by a man in black with a long gun. That was true. The masks he described on the killer's faces were not. He insisted he had been shot at a hospital in the emergency room. Speech was a problem. Only one side of his mouth moved, and his brain was inconsistent in retrieving information. Sometimes it got stuck. He gave them all ten digits of his phone number, but his first name was nearly impossible. Pa, pa. He could not form that second syllable. It sounded like a droning stream of nonsense, and then the second syllable spat out suddenly, clear and distinctive. Rick. Great. Rick Ireland. That caused considerable confusion later. Just before Patrick's rescue, President Clinton addressed the nation. He asked all Americans to pray for students and teachers in that school. As CNN cut back from the White House, an anchor spotted Patrick. Look, there's a bloody student right there in the window, she gasped. It played out live on television. Patrick's eighth-grade sister, Maggie, watched. He was so bloody, she didn't recognize him. Viewers were stunned, but it didn't make much of an impression at the rendezvous points. News of a kid falling out the window never reached most parents, including John and Kathy. They might have gone on searching for hours if Kathy hadn't asked a neighbor to run by the house to check the answering machine. The neighbor found endless messages from Kathy checking for Patrick, plus a recent one from St. Anthony's. We have your son. Please call. 
Kathy was conflicted. My son's alive. My son is hurt. It was scary, Kathy said later, but I was relieved to have something to deal with. She felt much better once she got a nurse on the phone. It was a head wound, but Patrick was awake and alert. He had provided his name and phone number. Oh, good, it was just a graze, Kathy thought. I just went straight to the assumption that it was just the scalp, she said later. If he was able to talk, then it was just the scalp. John felt grave danger, no relief. I just figured anybody shot in the head. It can't be good, he said. John drove the couple to the hospital. He was a computer programmer who prided himself on his navigational skill. He was too upset to find the hospital. He knew exactly how to get to St. Anthony's, he said. And I'm driving down Wadsworth, and I can't remember where the hell it is. They sat side by side, presuming they shared the same basic assumptions. It was seven years before they discovered that they arrived at St. Anthony's in completely different mindsets. John was racked with guilt. There should have been something I was able to do to protect him, he said. John knew it was irrational, but years later it still haunted him. Kathy focused on the present. How could she help Patrick now? But no one even knew exactly what was wrong. Staff kept coming in to check on them, filling them in on the surgery, what to expect in Patrick and themselves. Dead brain cells do not regenerate, but the brain can sometimes work around them, they were told. No one really understands how the brain reroutes its neural pathways, so there's no procedure to assist it. A projectile to the brain tends to cause two sets of damage. First, it rips away tissue that can never be restored. One path might cause blindness, another logical impairment. But the secondary impact can be just as bad, or worse. The brain is saturated with blood, so gunshots tend to unleash a flood. As fluid builds, oxygen is depleted, and the pool cuts off fresh supplies. Brain tissue is choked off by the very cells designed to nourish it. Patrick's doctors feared that, as he'd lain on the library floor, his brain had been drowning in its own blood. Patrick Ireland had brain damage, that was a fact. His symptoms indicated severe impairment. The only question was whether those functions could return. The surgery was scheduled to take about an hour, but lasted more than three. It was after 7 p.m. when the surgeon came out to advise John and Kathy of the results. He had cleared out buckshot fragments and debris from the surface. One pellet had penetrated Patrick's skull. It was far too perilous to dig out. That lead would be in him for life. It was hard to tell how much damage the pellet had wreaked. Swelling was the main indicator. It looked bad. As one SWAT team rescued Patrick Ireland, another squad reached the choir room. The rumor was true. Sixty students were barricaded inside. A few minutes later, sixty more were discovered in the science area. SWAT teams led them through the hallways, down the stairs, and across the commons. At 2.47, three and a half hours into the siege, the first of those kids burst out the cafeteria doors. News choppers homed in on them instantly. The anchors and the TV audience were perplexed. Where were these kids coming from? More followed, single file in quick succession, running down the hillside as fast as they could, with their hands on the backs of their heads, elbows splayed. They kept coming and coming, 
dozens of them, tracing the same winding path, first away from the school, then back toward a windowless corner surrounded by squad cars and ambulances. They huddled there for several minutes, sobbing, waiting, clinging to one another. Police officers patted them down and then hugged them. Eventually, cops packed groups of three to five kids into squad cars and shuttled them to the triage area a few blocks south. The kids had to run right past two bodies on the way out, so at some point an officer moved Rachel farther away. The SWAT team reached the one bleeding to death sign on the same sweep through the science area that freed all those kids. The sign was still against the window. The carpet in science room three was soaked in blood. The teacher was alive, barely. Seventeen. The Sheriff. The Columbine crisis was never a hostage standoff. Eric and Dylan had no intentions of making demands. SWAT teams searched the building for over three hours, but the killers were lying dead the entire time. They had committed suicide in the library at 12.08, 49 minutes after beginning the attack. The killing and the terror had been real. The standoff had not. The SWAT teams discovered the truth around 3.15. They peered into the library and saw bodies scattered around the floor. No sign of movement. They cleared the entrance and prepared to enter. They took paramedic Troy Lamon in with them. The SWAT team warned Lamon to be cautious. Touch as little as possible, they said. Anything could be booby-trapped. Be especially suspicious of backpacks. It was horrible. The room was a shambles. Blood spattered the furniture, and enormous pools soaked into the carpet. The tabletops were oddly undisturbed. Books open, calculus problems underway, a college application half completed. A lifeless boy still held a pencil. Another had collapsed beside a PC, which was still running, undisturbed. Lamon was tasked with determining whether anyone was alive. It didn't look like it. Most of the kids had been dead for nearly four hours, and it was obvious by sight. If I couldn't get a look at somebody at their face to see if they were still alive, I tried to kind of touch them, Lamon said. Twelve were cold. One was not. Lamon touched a girl, felt the warmth, and rolled her over to get a look at her face. Her eyes were open, tears trickling out. Lisa Krutz was carried down the stairs and rushed to Denver Health Medical Center. A gun blast had shattered her left shoulder. One hand and both arms were also injured. She had lost a lot of blood. She survived. Most of the bodies lay under tables. The victims had been attempting to hide. Two bodies were different. They lay out in the open, weapons by their sides. Suicides, clearly. The SWAT team had descriptions of Eric and Dylan. These two looked like a match. It was over. The team discovered four women hiding in back rooms attached to the library. Patty Nielsen, the art teacher from the 911 call, had crept into a cupboard in the break room. She had squatted in the cupboard for three more hours, knees aching, unaware the danger had passed. Three other faculty hid farther back. An officer instructed one to put her hand on his shoulder and follow him out, staring directly at his helmet to minimize exposure to the horror. 
It had been over how long? No one knew. With the fire alarm blaring, none of the staff had been close enough to hear. Detectives would piece it together eventually, how long the attack had lasted, and how long Eric and Dylan had killed. Those would turn out to be very different answers. Something peculiar had transpired seventeen minutes into the attack. The investigation outpaced the SWAT teams. Detectives were combing the park, the library, Leewood Elementary, and the surrounding community. They interviewed hundreds of students and staff, everyone they could find. When waves of fresh survivors outnumbered police officers, they conducted 30 to 60 second triage interviews. Who are you? Where were you? What did you see? Friends of the killers and witnesses to bloodshed were identified quickly, and detectives were waved over for lengthier interviews. Lead investigator Kate Batten performed some interviews personally. She was briefed on the rest. Batten was intent on getting every detail right, and avoiding costly errors that might come back to haunt them later. Everyone learned a lot from hearing about the O.J. Simpson case and Jean Benet Ramsey, she said later. We didn't need another situation like those. Her team also ran a simple search on Jeffco computer files and found something stunning. The shooters were already in the system. Eric and Dylan had been arrested junior year. They got caught breaking into a van to steal electronic equipment. They had entered a 12-month juvenile diversion program, performing community service and attending counseling. They'd completed the program with glowing reviews exactly ten weeks before the massacre. More disturbing was a complaint filed thirteen months earlier by Randy and Judy Brown, the parents of the shooter's friend, Brooks. Eric had made death threats toward Brooks. Ten pages of murderous rants printed from his website had been compiled. Someone in Batten's department had known about this kid. Batten organized the information and composed a single-spaced, six-page search warrant for Eric's home and a duplicate for Dylan's. She dictated them over the phone. The warrants were typed up in Golden, the county seat, delivered to a judge, signed, driven out to the killer's homes, and exercised within four hours of the first shots, before the SWAT team reached the library and discovered the attack was over. The warrant cited seven witnesses who'd identified Harris and or Klebold as the gunman. Agent Fusillet heard about the bodies on the police radio at 3.20. He had just gotten word that his son Brian was okay. Mass murder meant a massive investigation. How can I help? Fusillet asked the Jeffco commanders. Do you want federal agents? Definitely, they said. Jeffco had a small detective team. There was no way it could handle the task. An hour later, 18 evidence specialists began arriving. A dozen special agents would follow, along with half a dozen support staff. At 4 p.m., Jeffco went public about the fatalities. Chief Spokesman Steve Davis called a press conference in Clement Park, with Sheriff Stone by his side. The pair had been briefing reporters all afternoon. Most of the press had never heard of either man, but consensus about them emerged quickly. Sheriff Stone was a straight shooter. He had a deep, gruff voice and classic Western mentality. No hedging, no bluster, no bullshit. 
What a contrast to the blow-dried spokesman affixed to his side. Steve Davis began the conference by reiterating warnings about rumors. Above all, he stressed caution on two subjects, the number of fatalities and the status of the suspects. Davis opened the floor to questions. The first was directed to him by name. Sheriff Stone stepped forward, brushing Davis and his cautions aside. He held custody of the microphone through most of the press conference. The sheriff answered nearly every question directly, despite later evidence that he had little or no information on many of them. He winged it. The death count nearly doubled. I've heard numbers as high as twenty-five, he said. He pronounced the killers unequivocally dead. He fed the myth of a third shooter. Three, two dead suspects in the library, he said. Well, where is the third? We're not sure if there is a third yet or not, or how many. The SWAT operation is still going on in there. Stone repeated the erroneous death count several times. It led newscasts around the world. Newspaper headlines proclaimed it the next morning, 25 dead in Colorado. Stone said the three kids detained in the park appeared to be associates of these gentlemen or good friends. He was wrong. They had never met the killers and were soon cleared. Stone made the first of an infamous string of accusations. What are these parents doing that are letting their kids have automatic weapons? He asked. Reporters were surprised to hear the rumors about automatic weapons confirmed. They rushed in with follow-ups. I don't know anything about the weapons, Stone admitted. I assume there were probably automatic weapons just because of the mass casualties. A reporter asked about motive. Craziness. Stone said, wrong again. By now, dozens of kids had fled the school with their friends. School officials herded them across Clement Park to meet school buses that would drive past police barricades to Leewood. The buses parked directly beside the site of the press conferences. The kids trudged meekly toward the media throng. Many sobbed quietly. Others helped distraught students along, holding their hands or slinging an arm over their shoulders. Most of the kids stared at the ground. The crowd of reporters parted. These were not the faces of interview subjects. But the students were eager to speak. Teachers hurried the kids, chiding them to keep quiet. They were having none of that. The bus windows started coming down, heads popped out, and kids recounted their ordeals. Kids piled off the buses. The teachers tried to coax them back on. Not a chance. A tough-looking senior described his terror in the choir room with a sense of bravado and chivalry, but his voice cracked when a reporter asked how he felt. Horrible, he said. There were two kids lying on the pavement. I just—I started crying. I haven't cried for years. I just—I don't know what I'm going to do. Attention focused on the students. Endless reunions with their parents played out on TV. A different group weathered the crisis in seclusion. More than a hundred teachers worked at Columbine, along with dozens of support staff. A hundred and fifty families feared for their husbands, wives, and parents. There was no rendezvous point where they could gather. Most drove home and waited by their phones. That's where Linda Lou Sanders kept vigil. She had celebrated her mom's 70th birthday with the family. Then they'd headed up into the mountains for a pleasure drive. On the way, Linda's brother-in-law called her sister Melody on her cell. Where does Dave teach? Columbine. You better head back down there. 
Everyone gathered at Linda's house. Most of the news was good. Only one adult was reported injured, and it was a science teacher, which ruled out Dave. So why hadn't he called? Those reports were nearly accurate. Only one adult had been hit, and Dave was still bleeding at that moment. The sense that afternoon was that gunfire had erupted all over the place. In fact, it had mostly been limited to the library and the west steps outside. Teachers had not been studying for tests or strolling outside to enjoy their lunch in the sunshine. If the bombs had gone off as planned, it would have wiped out a quarter of the faculty in the teacher's lounge. But they had been spared by dumb luck. All but one. Dave held on for hours in science room three. Then the kids and teachers were evacuated, and none knew whether he'd made it. It would be a few days before the family would fully understand what had transpired in that room. It would take years to resolve why he'd lain there for over three hours, and who was to blame. All Dave's family knew was that he had failed to call. He must be trapped inside the building, they thought. That wasn't good. Linda hoped he wasn't a hostage. She assumed he was hiding. He would be safe. He was not a risk-taker. The family monitored the TV and took turns answering calls. The phone rang incessantly, but it was never Dave. Linda called his business line repeatedly. Nobody picked up. Linda was an athletic woman in her late forties, but she had a fragile psyche. Her smile was warm, but tentative, as if she could shatter from a harsh word or gesture. Dave had found great satisfaction in protecting her. In his absence, her daughters and sisters stepped in. Every call was fraught, so her family made sure to screen. In mid-afternoon, she got the urge to answer a call herself. It was a woman, she said later, and she said she was from the Denver Post and my husband had been shot. Do I have a comment? I screamed. I threw the phone. I have no idea what happened from then on. Robin Anderson was scared. Her prom date was a mass murderer. She had apparently armed him. To her knowledge, only three people had known about the gun deal, and the other two were dead. Had they told anyone? Were guns traceable? She had not signed anything. Would the cops know? Should she keep her mouth shut? The cops did not know. Robin had been debriefed in Clement Park and had played it totally cool. She told the detective where she had been and what she had seen. She told the truth, but not the whole truth. She didn't know for sure who had been shooting, so she didn't mention that she knew them. She certainly didn't mention the guns. Should she? The guilt began eating her up. Robin talked to Zack Heckler on the phone that afternoon. She kept her mouth shut about the weapons. He didn't. He was clueless about the guns, thank God. But he knew the guys had been making pipe bombs. Bombs? Really? That astounded Robin. Yes, really, Zack said. And he wasn't surprised at all. Zack didn't have quite the innocent picture of Dylan that Robin did. It sounded just like those guys to run down the halls laughing while they killed people, he said. Zack did not tell Robin that he helped Eric and Dylan make any pipe bombs. She wondered. Did he? Was he mixed up in this? More than her? Zack was scared, too. They all were. Anybody close to the killers. Zack wasn't volunteering information to the cops. He'd omitted mentioning the pipe bombs during his debriefing. 
Chris Morris went the opposite route. He'd call the cops in the first hour, as soon as he suspected that his friends were involved. He was handcuffed in Clement Park and spirited away on national television. He kept talking at the police station. He described Eric's interest in Nazis, a crack about jocks, and some scary recent suggestions, cutting power to the school and setting PVC bombs at the exits with screws for shrapnel. If Chris's story was legit... It suggested the killers had been leaking information about their plans, a classic characteristic of young assailants. If Eric and Dylan had leaked to Chris, chances were they had tipped off others as well. Chris's dad was called. He contacted a lawyer. At 7.43 p.m., the three sat down with detectives for a formal interview. Chris and his father signed a form waiving their rights. The cops found Chris highly cooperative. He described the killer's obsessions with explosives and volunteered all sorts of details. Dylan had brought a pipe bomb to work once, but Chris ordered him to get it out of there. Chris knew the guys had gotten their hands on guns. It had been an open secret around Blackjack several months ago that Eric and Dylan were looking for hardware. They'd never told Chris directly, but he had heard it from several people. Chris had a hunch who had come through for them, a kid named Phil Duran. Duran used to work at Blackjack, then moved to Chicago for a high-tech job. Before he'd left, Duran told Chris he had gone shooting with Eric and Dylan. Something about bowling pins and maybe an AK-47. Duran never said he had bought the guns, but Chris figured it was him. It sounded staggering how much Chris had known. He swore he had not taken it seriously. He agreed to turn over the clothes he was wearing and allow detectives to search his room. Everyone agreed to rendezvous at his house. Chris's mom met the cops at the front door, handed them his PC, and showed them upstairs. Then his brother arrived with Chris's clothes in a paper bag. He said Chris was afraid to come home. Mobs of media were already staking out the street. The cops found nothing of obvious value, but gathered up piles of material. They left at 11.15. Robin needed company. She couldn't handle the stress alone. Her best friend, Kelly, came over around 7.30 on Tuesday evening. They went to Robin's room. Kelly knew the boys well, too, especially Dylan. She had been part of the prom group. There was something Kelly didn't know, Robin told her. Remember that favor she had done Eric and Dylan last November? Kelly remembered. It had been a big secret. Robin had told Kelly repeatedly about this big favor she had done the guys, but she never would divulge what it was. Now she had to tell someone. It had been a gun show, the Tanner gun show in Denver. Eric and Dylan had called her on a Sunday, if she remembered right. They had checked the show out on Saturday, seen these sweet-looking shotguns, but they'd gotten carded. They were both underage then. They needed an 18-year-old with them. Robin was 18. She really liked Dylan, so she went. It was their money. Robin made sure not to sign any papers, but she was the one who bought the three guns. The boys each got a shotgun. One had some kind of pump thing on it. Eric went for a rifle, too, a semi-automatic that looked like a giant paintball gun. Robin felt so guilty, Kelly said later. How could she have imagined this? Robin didn't tell Kelly everything. She came clean with the main secret, but held back on a detail. 
She told Kelly she didn't know it was Eric and Dylan killing people until she heard it announced on TV that night. Kelly didn't buy it. Robin had never received a B in high school. She could have put that mystery together. When she heard about the trench coats, she had to have known. The Klebolds spent the afternoon and evening on their porch, waiting. They were no longer allowed inside. At 8.10 p.m., a deputy arrived with instructions. Their home was now a crime scene. They had to go. Tom and Sue Klebold told friends they felt hit by a hurricane. Hurricanes don't hit the Rockies. They'd never seen it coming. We ran for our lives, Sue said later. We didn't know what had happened. We couldn't grieve for our child. Officers escorted Tom in to gather clothes for the next couple of days. Then Sue went in to take care of the pets. She fetched two cats, two birds, and their food bowls and litter boxes. At 9 p.m., they drove away. They talked to a lawyer that night. He related a sobering thought. Dylan isn't here anymore for people to hate, he said. So people are going to hate you. Wow. Hating white people. I don't know. I don't know. Catherine Massey Book Club. I don't know. I don't know. I gotta think on that one. This book was published in 2009. Fast forward 10 years. Sue Klebold published a book. She did a documentary. A TED Talk? I don't know. I don't know. I've been sitting like we will hear from Sue Klebold, but I was going to play that later, but now I don't know. I got to sit on that one. Catherine Massey Book Club, context of white supremacy. I can do this one like I planned it beautifully too, right? Because I said last week, John Bonet Ramsey, that's why they got such enormous media coverage immediately or that's at least a part of the reason because they were already they the media white dominated they were already in Colorado for John Benet Ramsey trial mentioned this week how about that and then Oriental James Simpson Black OJ Gus T Renegade my goodness and last week we heard that portion about the lawyers it was Dylan Klebold's father calls the police. I think my son might be involved. Black trench coat. And then he calls a lawyer. Knowing what I know now. Whew, that is intelligent. That is a smart white man. <laughs> Mr. Klebold's parents knowing what I know. Even just what you've heard this week. That is is a smart white man that is doing it like the godfather and I mean that exactly that's how gangsters do it in fact what I now know they didn't just do it the gangster way from beginning the entire way through that documentary the Klebolds all of their subsequent contact with law enforcement officers was through their attorney Godfather. The number is 
5-6-4, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6-1 if you would like to participate. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. The number again, 605 313 5164 Decode 564-943-POUND Press star 6-1 if you would like to participate So much to share. Let us see. Uh, Folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if you have commentary, proceed. See, we'll give folks a moment to get their thoughts together. Let's see. One of our folks who wrote in, get to some of our emails as well. Uh, let's see. First person who wrote in, she writes. Hi, Gus and callers. I agree with the callers that the author is glorifying the Columbine massacre and the book will only serve to encourage like-minded psychopaths to commit similar crimes. The selection of the narrator is deliberate in my opinion. He sounds as though he is doing a voiceover for a blockbuster movie and it's disturbing. I thought I recognized the voice from the audiobook 48 Laws of Power written by someone who I believe is also a psychopath. Dang. I wonder if 50 Cent thinks that. Hmm. Uh, and yes, after doing some research, I found out he did the voiceover. I don't think it's a coincidence they selected someone who is credited for being the voice on such titles as Batman, Dark Tomorrow, Star Wars, The Old Republic, Warhammer Online, Wrath of Heroes, Dishonored 2, and Dishonored Death of the Outsider, The Dispossessed. I have not listened to his narration on those works. At the start of this book, the author talks about being a part of the media that reported on the massacre and acknowledges that much of the early reporting was incorrect. He stated that he hoped this book would serve as a way of setting the record straight. I was immediately immediately curious about that statement and decided to pay extra attention to this to this in his narrative in my opinion in my opinion, the author is rewriting history and portraying the two murdering psychopaths as innocent misunderstood and likable young men who were wronged by the rest of the world there are echoes of the book absolute madness and the wisdom of psychopaths two mentions today the author spends a lot of time downplaying their barbarism and also weirdly describing how charming and good looking eric harris was he also describes him as unflappable during the massacre and talked about how effective he was in causing carnage as if it was to be admired. The author, in my opinion, is more than a little obsessed with Eric Harris. Perhaps there's even a sexual element to his interest. That's what is coming through to me. It's very odd. Hmm, I have to sit with that. Wow. 
Now, he did spend 10 years writing this book, uh, Dave Cullen, uh, and he is a native of the Colorado area, but he said he spent six months really going through the journal entries of both Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris uh, and listening to their music, watching their movies, and really uh, kind of immersing himself in their thinking and whatever activities, that sort of thing, evidence that he could find. Um, so I don't know. We'll have to kind of think of that. He even in the interview that I played a snippet from, he talks about his choice of words, right? I thought I played a lot of that talk. Didn't want to play too much, but he later on in that interview talks about his word choice and how he wanted to make it kind of a, a captivating narrative and kind of, you know, like you're, you're seeing a visual of everything that transpired since so much of this was on video. So he talks about some of that. So, you know, to kind of inform people's uh, thought process about, uh, yeah, why this sounds the way it does in terms of word choice and what feelings, thoughts are conveyed with the wording that we're getting from the book. All right. So that's email number one. We'll get to some more of those as well. Uh, let's see. Lauren, did you have commentary? Should be with us. We'll nab other hands as well. Um, yes, sir, I do. I was just looking at my notes, and they are a little messy. But from the beginning part, um, it said Dylan was a loving, sensitive boy. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure. And hello, everyone. Thanks for letting me speak. Um, but it says Dylan was a loving, sensitive boy with a whole lot of anger. Dylan tried so hard loving the world, and he felt the world wasn't loving him back. He still committed suicide, uh, but it, but he took a lot of people with him. Um, that, that wasn't from the book. That was from the intro part, um, Dave Cullen talking about um, Dylan Klebold. You know, just a lot of, you know, trying to make it seem like um, this person was, maybe we should feel sorry for him. He was having a, a hard time. Um, you know, it is hard to have a BMW and, you know, grow up in that very rich area, go to that super nice high school where you have a bowling alley and psychology classes. Um, and then... He said, Dave Cullen, he said, no parents know they have a psychopath. Um, I, I don't accept that statement as true. When children learn to talk, they are pretty honest. Um, and if he was a psychopath, he probably said something that should have let his parents know that his mind was not correct. Um, you know what I was thinking to myself that what if you're a psychopath, right? And then you have a child and they're a psychopath. You might be pretty accepting of that. Um, and I don't want to like talk too much about that intro part, but it was pretty interesting. Um, he was talking about the parents of Charles Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer. And then he said, they don't have anyone who know what they're going through. I guess I think that there are a lot of people classified as white who have a mm, 
I don't, I mean, they act like psychopaths. They have that sort of thinking that would make you think something's wrong with them. I, I don't know. I just, I think lots of white people identify with that sort of thing. That's why they won't even put, you know, racism in the, uh, the DSM-5. They're like, well, it's so common. It can't be a condition. We're all racist. And, you know, so I just think that acceptance of incorrect thought, speech, and action is just kind of indicative of white culture. Um, when law enforcement got to Dylan Harris's house, uh, Kathy Harris got scared when they hit it for the basement. And she yells out, I don't want you going down there. I think that white woman knows exactly what kind of person she gave birth to. I just don't, um, I don't accept that, that she didn't know what kind of person he was. Um, it was a part where they said they were talking about the way that they negotiate in these hostage situations. Well, whether it's a hostage situation or a non-hostage situation. And it said in non-hostage situations, they give a little without getting in return. They get something in return. They, the example they gave was giving a cigarette. Um, but those people will give you a cigarette butt or a cup of water or whatever. And then after you get done smoking that cigarette, they'll take it and do a DNA test. They are getting something. So, you know, for him saying that, I think was inaccurate. Um, I have a lot of notes. <laughs> it said, by now, many of the killer's buddies suspected them. It was a scary time to be Eric or Dylan's friend. Now, uh, these are the same buddies that when they were at lunch, um, Dylan said, correction, Eric. Eric said, I hate almost everyone. I want to rip his head off and eat it. No one found that reaction unusual. They were used to Eric. So I'm not so sure that those buddies felt scared. If they did, I don't know what they were scared of. Um, as a matter of fact, Brooks, the one who yelled at him about missing the psychology test, I mean, he told him, you know, he gave him a warning and told him to leave. I mean, so what should they be scared of? And I don't think anything's going to happen to them. I, I you know, again, I, I don't know. I can't say how these people were feeling. I just do not accept these statements as true. Um, there was another part where it said Mimi monitored the stage at Leewood where talk of death and murder was forbidden. I think it's interesting that they use the German word for forbidden. Well, I think that's what it means. Uh, and that, that made me think of Nazi Germany. And I don't understand how could talk about death or murder be verboten after they go shoot all those children on the anniversary of Hitler's birth. I, I don't understand that. Um, um, there was a part when they were talking about Patrick, um, the white child who jumped out the window or fell out the window. And we're talking about the people who went to the hospital to meet Patrick. The mother was Kathy. I'm not sure who the other person was, John. I don't think that was their father. Maybe it was a neighbor. I don't know. But 
and said they sat side by side, presuming they shared the same basic assumptions. It was seven years before they discovered that they arrived at St. Anthony's in completely different mindsets. That passage, to me, shows the importance of asking questions. Um, I don't think it is constructive to assume that you know what somebody is thinking. Uh, just, I think you can just ask a question. That's how you learn. Um, you know, Gus and Mr. Fuller have really helped me to understand the importance of compensatory question asking. Uh, I'm trying to make up for what's missing that is adequate, accurate information and justice. I'm trying to solve problems. I, so I've, I'm asking questions. That is one of the things that I'm doing to gather information. And I'm, you should help people with these answers. Just ask the question. And then when they give their answer that you did not help them with, think, just think to yourself, is that true? And I think that's um, a constructive way to go about it. Um, I feel like I've been talking a long time. They did get the O.J. Simpson reference. I noticed that. Um, like three more things. Um, the the lady law enforcement, I think her name was Batan, B-A-T-T-I-N, I think that's what it was. But um, it said her team did a simple search on Jeffco's computer files and found something stunning. The shooters were already in the system. Is that really stunning? I don't find that to be surprising at all. And even if they were not in the system, like they did not have any sort of criminal records, that also is not surprising. White people get to commit crimes with impunity. That's what it means to be white in a system of white supremacy. Um, and then later, which uh, I was surprised, it said Eric had made death threats towards Brooks. Ten pages of murderous rants printed from his website had been compiled. Someone in Batan's department had known about this kid. Now, Brooks is the same student who yelled at Eric about missing the psychology test. Eric told him he liked him, told him to leave. Um, so I'm not really sure what to make of that. Uh, I don't know. And the lady who was talking about the narrator, mm, I'm not sure if I have heard him narrate anything before, but I did read, well, I don't know if this is the same book, but she was talking about the dispossessed by um, Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, that was pretty interesting. And that's all I have right now. Thank you. Much obliged, Lauren. Again, the narrator for this book is Don Leslie, so we get his name if people want to go and search out his catalog of other works. Don Leslie. Uh, I'm not sure. Let's see. Hmm. Much obliged again for the commentary. So many things to say about this here uh, wacky book. Um how about I'll pull our extra audio segment for today. This was just from the last 24 hours, literally just the last 24 hours. I guess even keep in mind the Allen, Texas shooting, which was last week. So this is within the last 24 hours uh, reported from Fox News 4 in Texas. 
Federal prosecutors say they may have stopped a mass tragedy by arresting a North Texas man last month. 22-year-old Noah Calderon of Burleson is charged with possessing a homemade bomb. But prosecutors also say he was fascinated with mass shootings and harbored white supremacist views. Fox 4's Blake Hansen reports. This was the scene in mid-April when federal agents and local police swarmed a Burleson neighborhood. They were searching the home of then 21-year-old Noah Calderon. Homes nearby briefly had to be evacuated after the discovery of a, quote, potentially volatile substance. His state charges at the time had to do with having explosives. But federal prosecutors this week revealed the extent of their investigation into Calderon, as well as what they found in his garage and home. The U.S. attorney saying in a statement that Calderon showed several indicators of potential violence, a fascination with mass shooters, an obsession with weapons, and hatred towards a protected class. What's worse, he had allegedly progressed from ideation to planning and preparation. Investigators say in October of last year, the FBI got a tip about Calderon's Snapchat posts showing homemade explosives, one with an apparent Nazi reference. On his social media footprint, investigators say Calderon embraced white supremacist ideas, was obsessed with mass shootings, including Columbine, and had posted photos of himself in tactical-style vests with AR-15-style rifles. Richard Roper is a former U.S. attorney not involved in the case. The takeaway from this is that somebody reported suspicious behavior. And, you know, maybe suspicious behavior turns out to be nothing. But, it, you know, the, the idea that you report something that you see suspicious is important. Investigators say in March they got another tip, this time that Calderon detonated a homemade bomb in his neighborhood. Shortly after, agents reviewed Calderon's Google, finding searches for pipe bomb, how to make, where were the propane bombs in Columbine, as well as the names of local schools. It's indicative of somebody that wants to hurt people or property. And that combined with the uh, provocative statements that he made in the, in the conduct, it, it's, it's very serious. The FBI says the April raid at Calderon's home led to the discovery of explosive powder, bomb-making materials, a jar marked frag full of BBs and lead. Agents also found a manifesto in Calderon's room that they described as glorifying the Columbine shooters and espousing white supremacy. The U.S. Attorney's Office saying this week it is thankful for the tipster that alerted them to Calderon. One, uh, citizens came forward and reported it. And number two, law enforcement uh, quickly and thoroughly investigated. Um, and those two uh, factors came together for a good result. A result that netted their suspect with no one injured. Blake Hanson, Fox 4 News. Last 24 hours. Noah Calderon, if you want to check espousing white supremacy worship religion of white supremacy worship of the Columbine killers when I posted this report online earlier today one of our listeners said man this Calderon fella race soldier he wasn't even born he wasn't even born at the time Eric Harris Dylan Klebo carry out their terrorist plot. He wasn't even alive. But he's inspired, worshiping it. Ah, whole manifesto. 
What does it mean to be white? Anywho, uh, incidentally, Lauren's commentary about uh, some of the parents having totally different perspective after they're going through this whole shooting experience. I did hear that before. Uh, we had uh, Doreen Lawrence, Baroness. Now, Doreen Lawrence has a guest on the program two times. Uh, her son, uh, Trevor Lawrence, Stephen Lawrence, sorry, Stephen Lawrence, was killed 1993 in London, England. And she said that she and her husband, Neville, never talked about this incident. And I think some of the times that these are victims of racism, but I think some of the times in these traumatic events, you're just so stunned about everything that you don't ask questions. There's no commentary at all. And she said this was more than 25 years after all of that had happened. And they still hadn't talked about their feelings or thoughts or any of that. So I think for some people, the grief is so overwhelming that you never even get to, you know, ask any of those questions or what have you. Anywho, let's see. Uh, get to some of my notes as well. Uh, we have other emails too. See, if we can get those both in number fit chapter 15. Uh, the SWAT team bursts in. I, I'm not sure how this whole thing would have played out. So you have a white person who's been accused, suspected of planting bombs, shooting and killing children. Then if it's a hostage situation, if these were black parents, they might have been snatched out of the house at gunpoint like it would not have been no you know Kathy Harris is going to tell them I don't want you running down like man snatch ah, cuff get out of I mean I'm, I could be making it they called an attorney already too so that might have you know had an impact on things um, let's see the anarchist cookbook Whew. I literally just posted yesterday there is a documentary it's called American Anarchist they get the white author of the anarchist cookbook and they talk to him this documentary came out within like the last seven eight years or so I think like 2016 2017 somewhere in there and uh, they talked to him that book was published in 1971 and it's got how to napalm homemade napalm and all that that fella Noah Calderon what they described that they found uh, and pipe bombs and all of that all of that is in the anarchist cookbook so they talk to this white author who does all the ignorance oh I didn't and so they start going through the whole litany of cases Timothy McVeigh all of these white people who've got this book anarchist cookbook and went out and bombed and killed people killed lots of white people even get to the middle of it Columbine. I just posted this literally yesterday. I literally thought about even including that as audio. So I'll play it next week. If I had known it was going to be in there today, I would have really had to think about that. Coming up next week, but I just played that anarchist cookbook. Uh, let's see. They talk to or start talking about agent FBI agent uh, Dwayne Fusilay. He says hugging his sons felt awkward, but he would reach out to embrace survivors when they needed it. Even that, like, dang, hugging your children feels awkward. Hmm. Okay. Uh, he did a stint on the domestic terrorism task force, which I found fascinating because they don't include. So were you working Timothy McVeigh? What were you working on exactly? 
like I even started looking online like what what exactly were you all doing see if I can find that out as well let's see later on they said reporters quickly keyed in on the darker force behind the attack this spooky trench coat mafia and uh, all the rest of the death and the gays and the outcasts uh, again a lot of this being inaccurate this is why I think I mentioned it specifically Dylan Storm Roof this time last year people wanted to call in and immediately give the details that they read uh, and it even happened there was a shooting at the FedEx facility in Indiana in 2001 springtime excuse me summertime I think that was uh, around June July of 2021 and I said the same thing for that one people dialed in and gave wrong information which I'm not surprised about because this still happens uh, where they'll have some sort of event especially if it's a major shooting it's active they haven't really resolved everything frequently they will get information wrong or just whatever uh, that happens on a regular basis even today and especially today you got the social media components so you don't know if you're getting this from somebody online and deliberate misinformation or whatever so you have to be very cautious he said it took years for the accurate information to come out about this I even 25 years on I generally hear this referenced as trench coat mafia all of that I'm sure he'll get into the details of that as we proceed let's see chapter 16 this definitely this chapter had a lot of that feel of uh, the gore of it like true crime is a huge genre for white people I don't know lots of black people who sit around and read absolute madness in fact I didn't know anybody who had read absolute madness we read about the Bayou Strangler Ronald J Dominic I didn't know any non-white people who had read those books I don't generally bump into non-white people who read you know Jeff Dahmer books uh, maybe if they're out there you can let us know Charles Manson Jack the Ripper uh, but this whole chapter going into all this detail about Patrick and dangling out the window and he's being shot now I will concede hey this was one of the dramatic parts of Columbine I think any documentary or visual project that you watch about Columbine they will probably have a image of this scene where he's saved by the SWAT team uh, because they, I mean, they have glaring color videos, just not HT too early. But it did have that feel of uh, just all of the gory detail and he's bleeding and his sister didn't even recognize him and all the rest of it. Uh, I noted the same thing that Lauren did uh, when in chapter 16, Mimi monitored the stage at Leewood where talk of death and murder were verboten. German forbidden no, no 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 and on Hitler's birthday when this happened in fact I saw a report today so many infamous things have happened that week uh, of April 20th Timothy McVeigh and Waco I mean it just goes back centuries that is an infamous week that is the week that the Titanic sank uh, and then on that date April 20th specifically it's close to the Boston Marathon bombing which I think was on April 15 but on that date specifically Hitler's birthday that's the exact date of the BP oil spill uh, in the Gulf I mean it just goes on and on and on for whatever about the the vortex of the universe that date and that week whew, take cover uh, let's see 
the term buckshot when they're going into detail about the shooting and gore of Patrick's injuries. They said several buckshot fragments were stuck in his skull and brain area. Uh, one, I said, man, even that term, I wonder what the etymology of that term buckshot, because that one where they're telling us who, who they made the great equalizer, this form of ammunition and firepower was formed to shoot the bucks. Is that what that is? I could be an error, just came to my mind while we were reading. All of the precise detail about the nature of Patrick's injuries to his brain and how that impacted his speech and ability to understand language and all fascinating hasn't someone been talking about going to the brain science convention autumn 2023 like that is stunning like in all of that detail which side of the uh, brain controls speech and how that impacted his ability to communicate with the doctors and even understand what they were saying and the SWAT I mean that wow fascinating did he have to go and get a neuroscientist to break all this down for him so he could put this information in the book like who were the experts again going to the brain scientist convention in autumn let's see uh, mm. the sheriff chapter 17 already got our OJ Simpson mentioned John Benet Ramsey as well uh, these guys are already in the system with an arrest that is important we talked about some of that with this van theft previously and you know would black people be treated the same more disturbing was a complaint filed 13 months earlier Randy and Judy Brown uh, that they've got 10 pages of murderous rants printed from his website I mean that is a lot 10 pages has anybody here have you written two pages two pages of text let's do it that way anybody here written two pages of text messages about the coon of the week coon of the month black person has really got on your nerves Kanye West was really out of pocket this week. I had to, man, I just, my fingers were rolling, man. Anybody? 10 pages? 10 I pages? I don't think I have. Come on. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, come on. Come on. 10 pages? And not just, I'm mad and they're a coon and, oh, that Kanye boy, he really did it. I want to kill him. I'm going to chop his head off. Ooh. 10 pages? And on a website at a time most people didn't even have a computer much less a web page he was 18 come on he's not like he was working at IBM or a computer engineer at Virginia Tech Georgia Tech he's in high school he hadn't even graduated yet he got a web page with 10 pages boy I'm on killing you plucked my nerves you did the get let's see I just think he included the time that they got a warrant to go and search these white killers residents and that that warrant was completed quicker than the SWAT team getting into the school. Again, I'll concede it is way easier to sit back some almost 30 years later comfortably from a chair and critique Monday morning quarterback, as they call it, uh, how they proceeded not under the threat of death it's easy for myself or anyone else to do that however if you are trained whole SWAT team started we got to go in there and get these black panthers that's what you train to do that's your life that's your career that's what you're paid to do 
man, that is super cowardly. And some people died as a result of that. Jesus, man. Again, they changed police procedure as a result of this. And even that is being talked about right now with Uvalde and saying, man, we went through this before and you all are still doing the same cowardly antics. You do all this talking about you got to have a gun. And then the time comes we need a white man with a gun. You behave like cowards. Keep that in mind as we roll. Let's see. Uh, when he's describing the difference between Steve Davis, the chief spokesman for Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, and then Sheriff Stone, these two white men, I thought the uh, metaphor street shooter. Once again, white culture is the gun. Columbine's high school, they are called the rebels. And the mascot is literally a white man with a gun. I think they might have changed it since then. Some other people might have looked at that and said, hmm, had they shooting here? Maybe we shouldn't have a white man with a gun as a mascot, maybe. But that's what it was at the time of this event. It was at the front of the school. Rebels, no less. That was the code that they were going to use when they were hiding in the uh, gymnasium storage room. We're going to call the code will be the Rebels. That's Eric Harris's nickname. Again, Rebel and Vodka. I mean, that's white culture through and through. I'm a straight shooter. Stick to your guns. He's a pistol. Remember that when we read uh, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf? Pistol Pete. They even described him as a shooter. He's a pistol. White culture. The gun. The great equalizer. Uh, And even the hair reference that uh, this guy's blow dried. Uh, Stephen Davis. Steve Davis. I don't really know what that means. That he's blow dried, whereas Sheriff Stone is a street shooter. Anywho, he continues. He says every question Sheriff Stone directly he answered every question directly, despite later evidence that he had little or no information on many of them. That right there. That is why I say strive for accuracy. That right there is why I say, hey, the first 24 hours when something happens. I don't want to hear from any of you. Some of you are like, but it didn't last time with dinner. Oh, I got to get to it. I don't care where you got it from. You got it from social media. Oh, they stole a police horse. And then we got to find out. No, that is wrong. There is a reason for that. There is a long history, all kinds of errors and inaccuracies, particularly during the first like hour even 24 hours i say but i mean ooh we the first hour or so you might hear anything in fact i even think with the movie or not the movie when they had the sandy hook shooting they were talking about his brother they didn't even get the name right it wasn't adam lanza they were talking about his brother for a while before they got whoops 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 got that together and i mean hey that's what you would expect when things are evolving but i mean yeah it's really bad on this one you can go back and see front page newspaper 25 casualties and I got whoops 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 wrong 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 uh, let's see they said a reporter asked about the motive craziness Sheriff Stone said or yeah a reporter asked about the motive craziness Sheriff Stone said wrong again I had to pause on that one too like really Dr. Welsing recommends not assigning craziness to white people who practice racism white supremacy this was on Hitler's birthday was supposed to take place on April 19 according to what we read which would have been Timothy McVeigh also a reader of the anarchist cookbook and the Turner Diaries uh, let's see oh man alrighty so this one 
I think Lauren had talked about Robert Anderson before. This is the white teenager who bought them the guns. Talk about right here. Talked about her before, and you know she should have been prosecuted. All the rest. Uh, so she calls Zach Heckler on the phone. Kept her mouth shut about the weapons. He didn't. He was clueless about the guns. Thank God, but he knew the guys had been making pipe bombs. Bombs? Really? That astounded Robin. Really? Yes, Zach said, and he wasn't surprised at all. Zach didn't have quite the innocent picture of Dylan that Robin did. It sounded just like those guys to run down the halls laughing while they killed people. W-T, I was going to say W-T-H, but I mean really W-T-F. Who, anybody here? You got friends, homies, people you stop and have a little cauliflower little bok choy, Brussels sprouts from time to time, might have a little watermelon during the summer with anybody that you kick it with. You think, oh yeah, that's just like old Leroy. Somebody going to be running down the hallway giggling and shooting people and killing children. <laughs> that's old Leroy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know I don't have a whole lot of homies and friends. I, I Granted, worthless Negro from Virginia, but man, I do not have one person in my homie circle, friend circle, associate circle, no circle, even people that I know so-called casually that I can think, oh yeah, oh Jamal, mm-hmm, oh Lakeisha, mm-hmm, I could totally see her, yep, pipe bombs and blasting children, mm-hmm, at no point in my life can I think of that like, W-T-F and we've been kicking it engaged in some of this behavior like what then they go out to do some shooting and mm, I don't know mm, I don't know if I can tell I gotta keep this <laughs> world thank you let me see uh, not surprised at all Zach didn't have the questions eh. Uh, Zach did not tell Robin that he had helped Eric and Dylan make any pipe bombs. She wondered, did he? Was he mixed up in this? Zach was scared too. They they all were anybody close to the killers. Zach wasn't volunteering information to the cops. He omitted mentioning the pipe bombs during his debriefing. I say moo all the time. Context of white supremacy that is minimize racism, white supremacy, and white people's involvement deliberate, knowingly. They omit. Obfuscate is the middle one. I was in such a hurry, but they will obfuscate their conduct, make it deliberately confusing, and then they will outright omit. These are teens, and they already got it. Like, oh, pipe bombs. I don't know about pipe bombs. We used to make, he said that they used to go up on the roof, get drunk, <laughs> going up on the roof, and whoa, got to have bottle rockets and pipe bombs. Whoa, page 95, and Arkansas going to get up. There it goes. Whoa. And then there's, oh, pipe bombs. I don't know about pipe bombs. <laughs> Didn't he kill some of your friends? Yes, sure is a shame. I sure do feel guilty. I even wanted to put a count on that. Numbers of times that we hear white people talking about feeling guilty. 
Oh, I knew something. I should have. Oh, you had all those pipe bombs. Why does it need pipe bombs? Oh, I should have said. I just feel so. Man, I am suspicious of all of that because I hear white people talk about feeling guilty about racism. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Now, hey, he killed a lot of children here, but I mean, <laughs> I would be remiss. That coon does say white people don't care about children. These Columbine killers are heroes. Gus T. Renegade is a worthless coon from Virginia and a militant. They are worshipped. Got video games, movies, fans, groupies. Been dead for almost 30 years and they got fans and groupies more than us. More books coming. Let's see. Get anything? Oh, I didn't even get all my notes. Chris Morris went the opposite route. He called the cops in the first hour as soon as he suspected that his friends were involved. He was handcuffed in Clement Park and spirited away on national television. He kept talking at the police station. He described Eric's interest in Nazis. That's number three time that we've had direct reference to Nazis. A crack about jocks and some scary recent suggestions cutting power to the school are you out of your flipping mind has the worthless coon from Virginia been talking about all these reports for the past six months about cutting power attacks on the substation what goofy book did I say that was in the Turner Diaries I said I bet you now it just goes up before I said hey drop a C note Benjamin Franklin name your price I take any over you want put a thousand dollars down put ten thousand dollars down I know these white psychopaths read the Turner Diaries. If they're all into the Nazi this, Timothy McVeigh, Anarchist Cookbook, they had to. Cutting out power to the school? Jesus Christ, have we heard that before? At teens? Oh, I don't. What non white people do you know? They sit around. How can we knock out power to the whole block, the whole city? Hmm. Come on, man. Let's see. Uh, My man, Chris, he said he described the killer's obsession with explosives and volunteered all sorts of details. Dylan had brought a pipe bomb to work once. Come on. Come on. Come on. Who do you know? Leroy can bring a pipe bomb to work and nobody snitching. If I work with my mom. No disrespect, mom. All love to mom. Moms are important. If I worked with my mom and I brought a pipe bomb to work, I think she would snitch on me and she would be right to do so. They bought a pipe bomb to work and no one ratted them out. Uh, Chris knew the guys had gotten their hands on gun. It seemed to be an open, open secret around Blackjack several months ago that Eric and Dylan were looking for hardware. Is that the, that's the slang? That's how the young people call it now? That's what they say about my man John Morant? Like, man, you see him in the video on the, on the IG with the hardware? Dang, okay. And everybody knew this. Again, nobody thought this was worthy of reporting. If it had been John Morant with a pipe bomb, 
hardware. You think it would have been the same response? Uh, let's see. They got the sweet-looking shotguns. I thought that was kind of delectable, Negro-ish. We didn't get sweet pies. We didn't get sweet candy bars. We didn't get sweet bubble gum. Even a sweet-looking girl or a sweet-looking ride. Eh. Sweet-looking shotguns. Alrighty. Any hoodles? Let's see. We will pause so that we have ample time for our second audio segment. And then we'll resume, have our additional comments, thoughts. Wow, what a read. What does it mean to be white? Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, Dave Cullen's Columbine, audio segment two. 18. Last Bus. The buses kept arriving at Leewood Elementary, delivering discouragement as well as joy. It was great if your kid got off, but the odds kept dropping as the remaining parents dwindled. I was getting envious of parents who were finding their kids and screaming out their names, Doreen Tomlin recalled. She found it harder and harder to get up. Her husband kept the faith, but hers played out. Buses arrived, and she stayed in the area, silently chastising herself. I thought, why aren't you getting up and looking? All these other parents are pinned to the stage, and you're just sitting here. Brian Rohrbaugh had given up even earlier. By 2 p.m., while Leewood was packed with hopeful parents, Brian had accepted Danny's fate. I knew he was gone, he said. I assume it was God telling me, preparing me. I hoped I was wrong. We waited for busloads of kids, but I knew he wasn't going to be on it. I told Sue, you know, he's gone. But his ex-wife was hopeful. In the public library... Misty Bernal was, too. Her son Chris had turned up, but Cassie was still missing. She is alive, Misty told herself fiercely. Nothing could dampen Misty's resolve or her perseverance. Her mom came up to me every two minutes and asked if I'd seen Cassie. A friend of her daughter's said, I told her, I'm sure there are a lot of people unaccounted for. Not what Misty wanted to hear. Prayer helped. Please, God, just give me my baby back, she prayed. Please, God, where is she? Misty gave up on the public library. She made her way through Clement Park and discovered the buses being loaded. She scurried from one to the next. A friend of Cassie's reached out to grab her hand. Have you seen Cass? Misty cried. No. Misty returned to the library. Brad and Chris met her there. Then everyone was sent to Leewood. That was a huge relief for the parents waiting there. More families, better odds. The buses kept coming every ten to twenty minutes for a while. Then arrivals slowed. Around four o'clock, they stopped. One more bus was promised. Parents looked around. Whose kids would it be? The wait went on endlessly. At five o'clock, it still wasn't there. Siblings wandered out to watch for it, hoping to run inside with the news. Doreen Tomlin had not gotten up in a long time, but she was still praying her boy would be on it. We were clinging to that hope, she said. At dinner time, President Clinton held a press conference in the West Wing to discuss the attack. Hillary and I are profoundly shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton, he said. He passed on the hope of a Jeffco official who had just told him, 
Perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge if it could happen in a place like Littleton. Clinton sent a federal crisis response team and urged reporters to resist jumping to conclusions. What I would like to do is take a couple of days because we don't know what the facts are here, he said, and keeping in mind the community is an open wound right now. At Leewood, even the resilient families were faltering. Nothing had changed. No buses, no word, for hours on end. District Attorney Dave Thomas tried to comfort the families. He knew which ones would need it. He had 13 names in his breast pocket. Ten students had been identified in the library, and two more outside, based on their clothing and appearance. One teacher lay in science room three, all deceased. It was a solid list, but not definitive. Thomas kept it to himself. He told the parents not to worry. At eight o'clock, they were moved to another room. Sheriff Stone introduced the coroner. She handed out forms asking for descriptions of their kids' clothing and other physical details. That's when John Tomlin realized the truth. The coroner asked them to retrieve their kids' dental records. That went over unevenly. Many took it gravely. Others perked up. They had a task, finally, and hope for resolution. A woman leapt up. Where is that other bus? she demanded. There was no bus. There was never another bus, Doreen Tomlin said later. It was like a false hope they gave you. Many parents felt betrayed. Brian Rohrbaugh later accused the school officials of lying. Misty Bernal also felt deceived. Not intentionally, perhaps, but deceived nonetheless, she wrote, and so bitterly that it almost choked me. Sheriff Stone told them that most of the dead kids had been in the library. John always went to the library, Doreen said. I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt sick. She felt sadness, but not surprise. Doreen was an evangelical Christian and believed the Lord had been preparing her for the news all afternoon. Most of the evangelicals reacted differently than the other parents. The press had been cleared from the area, but Lynn Duff was assisting the families as a Red Cross volunteer. A liberal Jew from San Francisco, she was taken aback by what she saw. The way that those families reacted was markedly different, she said. It was like 180 degrees from where everybody else was. They were singing. They were praying, they were comforting the other parents, especially the parents of Isaiah Scholes, the only African-American killed. They were thinking a lot about the other parents, the other families, and responding a lot to other people's needs. They were definitely in pain, and you could see the pain in their eyes, but they were very confident of where their kids were. They were at peace with it. It was like they were a living example of their faith. But not all the evangelicals reacted the same way. Misty Bernal was defiant. She was sure Cassie was alive. Mr. D. stayed with the families. He was doing his best to console them and waiting for word on a close friend. He had known Dave Sanders for twenty years. They had coached three sports together, shared hundreds of beers, and Frank had attended Dave's wedding. Frank had been hearing rumors about Dave all afternoon. Sometime after the coroner's announcements, a teacher and a friend of both men, Rich Long, showed up at Leewood. He saw Frank and rushed up to hug him. 
All I can remember was seeing blood on his pants and his shirt, Frank said later. And I said, Rich, tell me, is it true? Is Dave dead? And he couldn't give me an answer. Frank assured Rich he was strong enough to take the news. Tell me, he pleaded. I need to know. Rich couldn't help him. He was struggling with the same question. Agent Fusilet had talked gunmen down and seen a few open fire right in front of him. He had struggled for weeks to release 82 people at Waco, then watched the gas tanks erupt and the buildings burn down. He'd known they were all dying inside Waco. Watching had been unbearable. This was worse. Fusilet went home and gave Brian a hug. It had been a long time between hugs, and it was hard to let go. Then he sat down to watch the news reports with Mimi. He held her hand and choked back tears. How could you go home and get dental records? He asked. Then what? You know your kid is lying there dead? How do you go to sleep? 19. Vacuuming Dave Sanders was one of the few teachers unaccounted for. He was still in science room 3. The SWAT team had reached him still alive, but hopeless. Several minutes later, before he was evacuated, Dave Sanders bled to death. His family was not notified. Late in the afternoon, they got word he was injured and taken to Swedish Medical Center. I don't know who drove me, Linda Lou said. I don't know how I got there. I don't remember the ride. I don't remember walking in there. I remember when we got there. They took us in a room. There was food. There was coffee. There were the sisters, the nuns. It was like a greeting committee, awaiting their arrival, but curiously waiting for Dave, too. Linda found the head nurse reassuring. She said, as soon as he gets here, you get to see him. And he never got there. He never got there. Eventually, they gave up and went to Leewood. They waited there a while and then headed back home. Relief agencies dispatched victims' advocates. Several showed up at the house, a helpful but ominous sign. The phones rang constantly, five separate cells laid out on the coffee table, but never with the call they wanted. Linda retreated to her room. Every time someone used the bathroom downstairs, the exhaust fan clicked on, and Linda jumped up, believing it was the garage door opening. Finally, about 10.30, Mom and I got sick of waiting, Angie said. We knew there had been a couple teachers with him, teachers who'd known him for... since I was born. And so we called them to find out what happened, and they informed us. Dave had been the teacher bleeding to death. But had he bled out? Dave was alive when the SWAT team evacuated all the civilians. After that, no one seemed to know. Only the cops had seen it end, and they weren't ready to say. We still didn't know whether he was taken out of the school or not, Angie said. But at least we knew a little more about what happened inside. Linda tried to sleep. That was useless. She curled up with a pair of Dave's socks. Linda spent the evening trying to blank out her mind. Odd thoughts slipped through. All those people in my living room, she thought, and I didn't have time to vacuum. It was a common response. Survivors focused on mundane tasks, tiny victories they could still accomplish. Many were horrified by their thoughts. Marjorie Lindholm had spent much of the afternoon with Dave Sanders. 
He kept getting whiter. Explosions kept erupting. When the SWAT team finally freed her, Marjorie ran past two bodies on the way out. She worried about how she had dressed. Her parents would find her in a tank top that suddenly felt sleazy. She borrowed a friend's shirt to cover herself up. A cop drove her to safety in Clement Park, and a paramedic stepped up to examine her. God, he was hot, she thought. I felt ashamed, she wrote later. I was thinking how this paramedic looked, and people died. A sophomore reproached herself for her survival instincts. She saw the killers and she took off running. Another girl was right by her side. The other girl went down. Blood was everywhere, the sophomore said. It was just terrible. She kept running. Later that day, she confessed her story to a Rocky Mountain News reporter. Why didn't I stop to help that girl? she asked. Her voice grew very soft. I'm so mad, she said. I was so selfish. Brad and Misty Bernal got home around 10 p.m. Brad climbed on top of the garden shed with a pair of binoculars to peer across the field. The library windows were blown out, and he could see men milling about inside. They were in blue jackets with big yellow letters, ATF. They had their heads down, but Brad couldn't quite make out what they were up to. I guess they were stepping over bodies, looking for explosives, he said. They were searching for live explosives and live gunmen. SWAT teams searched every broom closet. If third, fourth, or fifth shooters were still hiding out, they would be flushed out by morning. Brad came back into the house. At 10.30, an explosion shook the neighborhood. Brad and Misty ran upstairs. They looked out Cassie's window, but nothing moved. Whatever it was, it had passed. Cassie's bed was empty. Misty feared she was still in the school. Had she been injured by the blast? It was the bomb squad's one major mistake. They were moving bombs out of the area for controlled explosions. As they loaded one into a trailer, the strike-anywhere match Eric used for a detonator brushed the trailer wall, and it blew. Bomb technicians fell backward as trained, and the blast shot straight up. No one was hurt, but it threw a big scare into the team. Everyone was exhausted. This was getting dangerous. They called it a night. Commanders instructed them to return at 6.30 a.m. Brad and Misty kept watching. I knew Cassie was in there somewhere, Brad said. It was terrible to know that she was on the other side of the fence, and there was nothing we could do. Part 2. After and Before 20. Vacant There is a photograph. A blonde girl lets out a wail. Her head is thrown back, caught in her own hands, palms against her temples, fingers burrowing into her scalp. Her mouth is wide open, eyes squeezed shut. She became the image of Columbine. Throughout Clement Park Tuesday afternoon, and in the photos that captured the experience, the pattern repeated. Boy or girl, adult or child, nearly everyone was clenching something. A hand her knees, his head, each other. Before those pictures hit the newsstands, the survivors had changed. Kids drifted into Clement Park on Wednesday morning, unclenched. Their eyes were dry, their faces slack. Their expressions had gone vacant. Most of the parents were crying, but almost none of their kids were. They were so quiet, it was unsettling. 
hundreds of teenagers, and not a whiff of nervous energy. Here and there a girl would sob, and a boy would rush over to hug her. Boys practically fought over who would provide the hugs, but those were brief exceptions. They were aware of the blankness, acutely. They didn't understand it, but they saw it and discussed it candidly. A vast number said they felt they were watching a movie. The lack of bodies contributed to the problem. They were still inside the perimeter. None of the names had been released. The school was effectively gone. Nobody but police could get near it. It wasn't even visible from the line of police tape where everyone gathered. Students had a pretty good idea of who had been killed. All the murders had been witnessed, and the word spread quickly. But so many stories had turned out to be wrong. Doubt persisted. Everyone seemed to have at least a few people unaccounted for. How can we cry when we don't know who we are crying for? One girl asked. And yet, she had cried. She had cried most of the night, she said. By morning, she had run out of tears. No one from the sheriff's department called Brian Rohrbaugh. No officer appeared on the doorstep to inform him that his son had been killed. The phone woke Brian Wednesday. It was a friend calling to warn him before he picked up the Rocky Mountain news. There was a picture. Brian flipped past the huge heartbreak headline, the dozens of stories and diagrams and pictures of clenched survivors, none of whom were his boy. He stopped at page 13. It was an overhead shot from a news chopper, but the photo filled half the page, so the subjects were large and unmistakable. Half a dozen students huddled behind a car in the parking lot, with a policeman squeezed in beside them, squatting behind the wheel for cover, his rifle mounted across the trunk, eyes to the gun sight, finger on the trigger. A boy lay unprotected on the sidewalk nearby. He was out in the open, collapsed on his side, one knee curled up toward his chest, both arms splayed. Motionless, the caption read, an enormous pool of blood, nearly the size of his body, stained the concrete a foot away and trickled down the crevice between two sidewalk squares. The victim was unidentified, his face blurry and almost completely obscured by the angle. But Brian Rohrbaugh knew. He never turned to page 14. Brian was a tall man with the heavy build of a laborer. He had a long, puffy face with receding silver hair that accentuated his clenched brow. Deep grooves stacked up across his forehead, over a pair of vertical gashes above the bridge of his nose. Danny looked remarkably similar, though he had yet to grow into all his features or develop the worry lines. Danny was all Brian had. He and Sue had divorced when their son was four. Sue had remarried, but Brian had not. He had his custom audio business. It was successful, and he loved it. But the best part was that Danny did, too. He had been toddling around the workshop since he could walk. By seven, he was building wiring harnesses and running speaker wire. In junior high, he started working for real weekdays after school. Brian and Sue had a friendly divorce and lived only a few blocks apart. But Danny could never get enough time with his father. 
The shop was such a cool hangout for a high school boy. A big, greasy garage filled with power tools and hundred-thousand-dollar vintage cars up on blocks. Danny helped fit them with opera-caliber sound systems worth more than his wealthier friends' cars. Depending on the project, the place might reek of burnt rubber or prickly epoxy fumes. When Brian manned the buzzsaw, the sweet smell of fresh-cut cherry wood wafted into the street. Danny was a natural. He loved cars and he loved sound. He was great with the PC and had an ear for pitch. He liked to mess around with computer programs and was promising to take the business in a new direction. And he knew how to behave. Brian catered to some of the oldest and richest families in Colorado. Danny had grown up in their houses. He knew the drill. He was a charmer, and Brian reveled in showing him off. A few months ago, Danny had come to a decision. College was not for him. He would go straight into the business from Columbine, make a career of it. Brian was ecstatic. In three years, he would make his son a partner. In four weeks, Danny was going to spend his first summer working at the shop full time. Wednesday morning, as soon as he saw the picture, Brian got in his car. He drove to Columbine. He stormed up to the perimeter and demanded his boy's body. The cops there said no. Not only were they not turning Danny over, they had not brought him inside. Danny was still out there, lying on the sidewalk. He had weathered the elements all night. Too many bombs, the authorities said. The body could be booby-trapped. Brian knew he wasn't getting a straight answer. Bomb squads had been clearing the school since Tuesday afternoon. Brian's son just wasn't a priority. Brian couldn't believe they were treating a victim's body so cavalierly. Then it began to snow. Danny lay out on that sidewalk for twenty-eight hours. Misty Bernal started Wednesday at 3 a.m., she had slept a little, drifting in and out. Nightmares would jolt her awake. Cassie trapped in the building, huddled in the dark in some closet, or lying on the cold tile floor. Her daughter needed her. She's over the fence a hundred yards away, Misty thought, and they won't let us get to her. She gave up and took a shower. Brad did too. They dressed and crossed the backyard to the perimeter. A cop was standing guard. Brad told him Cassie was in there. He implored the cop, give it to them straight. We just want to know if there's anyone still alive in there. The cop paused. No, he said finally. No one left alive. They thanked him. We appreciate your honesty, Misty said. But Misty wasn't giving up. The cop could be wrong, or Cassie might be lying in a hospital unidentified. Misty kept trying the perimeter all morning. She was rebuffed each time. Then the parents were alerted to return to Leewood. Brad and Misty headed right over. They waited for hours. District Attorney Dave Thomas arrived around 1.30. He still had the list of the deceased. It had not changed, nor had it been confirmed. The coroner required another 24 hours. So... He decided to risk it. He informed the families one by one. I don't know how to tell you this, he told Bob Kernow. You don't have to, Kernow said. It's written on your face. Misty took it hard, but she did not take it definitively. The D.A. said Cassie was dead, but he also said it was unofficial. 
Hope gradually dissolved into anger. If Cassie were dead, Misty wanted her body out of that library and attended to. Linda Sanders' family awaited the news at her home. By Wednesday afternoon, the house was packed with friends and relatives. Everyone knew what was coming. News crews set up a row of cameras to capture the moment of agony. Be ready, a victim's advocate told Melody. Be prepared to support your sister. A patrol car pulled up just before 3 p.m. The deputy rang the bell, and Melody let him in. Linda was still not ready to hear it. We have tentatively identified your husband as a victim at Columbine, he said. Linda screamed. Then she threw up. Frank DeAngelis didn't know if he was safe yet. He woke up at his brother's house on Wednesday because he had been advised against staying at his own home. His car was sealed off inside the perimeter, so an assistant principal was on his way to pick Frank up before dawn. He was headed for meetings to figure out what to do. What on earth were they going to do? And what could he say? They were coming to hear him at 10 a.m. Kids, parents, teachers, anyone aching, had been told to gather at Light of the World, a large Catholic church, one of the few venues large enough. They would look to him for answers. He had none. Frank had lain awake much of the night, grappling with it. God, give me some guidance. He'd prayed. Morning came, and he was no closer. He was consumed with guilt. My job is to provide an environment that's safe, he said later. I let so many people down. Light of the world seats 850, and every pew was packed, with hundreds more students and parents standing against the walls. A parade of local officials took the podium in turn, trying to console the kids who were inconsolable. The students applauded each speaker politely. Nobody was getting through. Mr. D. would settle for polite applause. He was hoping he wouldn't get lynched. Did he deserve to be? He had no speech prepared, no notes. He just planned to tell them what he felt. His name was announced. He rose to approach the microphone. And the crowd leapt up from the pews. There was shouting, cheering, whistling, applauding. Kids who hadn't registered a smile or a frown for hours were beating their palms together or pumping their fists, fighting back tears, or letting them stream down their chins. Mr. D. buckled at the waist. He clutched his stomach and staggered around, turning his back to the audience, sobbing uncontrollably. His torso was parallel to the floor, shaking so hard it was visible from the last row. He stood there for a full minute while the crowd refused to subside. He couldn't face them. He couldn't right himself. It was so strange, he said later. I just couldn't control it. My body just went into convulsions. The reason I turned my back is I was feeling guilt. I was feeling shameful. And when they started clapping and standing, knowing I had their approval and support, that's when I broke down. He made it to the podium and began with an apology. I am so sorry for what happened and for what you're feeling. He reassured them and promised to stand by them. I will be there for you whenever you need it, but refused to sugarcoat what they were in for. 
I'd like to take a wand and wipe away what you're feeling, but I can't do that. I'd like to tell you those scars will heal, but they will not, he said. His students were grateful for the candor. So many kids in Clement Park that morning would describe how tired they already were of hearing so many people tell them everything would be all right. They knew the truth. They just wanted to hear it. Mr. D. ended his speech by telling them he loved them, each and every one of them. They needed to hear that, too. Kids were having trouble with their parents, especially their moms. It's kind of hard for me to sit at home, a boy said. Like, when my mom comes home, I try to stay out of the house. Lots of other boys nodded, more and more told the same story. Their mothers were so scared, and the fear hadn't abated when they'd found their kids. Now they just wanted to hug them. Hug him, her, forever. That was the refrain Tuesday. Wednesday, it was, my mom doesn't understand. Emotionally, their mothers were wildly out of sync. At first, the kids needed the hugs badly. Now, they needed them to stop. Most of the student body wandered the park, desperate to unload their stories. They needed adults to hear them, and their parents would not do. They found their audience, the press. Students were wary at first, but let their guards down quickly. Reporters seemed so understanding. Clement Park felt like an enormous confessional Wednesday. The kids would regret it. In the midst of it, a shriek pierced the media camp. Mourners froze, unsure of what to do. More screams, different voices, same direction. Hundreds ran toward them, students, journalists, everyone within hearing range. They found a dozen girls gathered around a single car that remained among the satellite trucks in a small lot on the edge of the park. It was Rachel Scott's car, the first girl shot dead. Rachel didn't have an assigned spot, so she had parked half a mile from the school on Tuesday. No one had come to claim the car. Now it was covered front to back with flowers and candles. Messages to Rachel in heaven had been soaped across the windows. Her girlfriends held hands in a semicircle around the back of the car, sobbing uncontrollably. One girl began to sing. Others followed. The Harrises and Klebolds both hired attorneys. They had good reason. The presumption of guilt quickly landed on their shoulders. Investigators didn't expect to charge them, but the public did. National polls taken shortly after the attack would identify all sorts of culprits contributing to the tragedy. Violent movies, video games, goth culture, lax gun laws, bullies, and Satan. Eric did not make the list. Dylan didn't either. They were just kids. Something or someone must have led them astray. Wayne and Kathy and Tom and Sue were the chief suspects. They dwarfed all other causes, blamed by 85% of the population in a Gallup poll. They had the additional advantage of being alive, to be pursued. Their attorneys warned them to keep quiet. Neither family spoke to the press. Both released statements on Wednesday. We cannot begin to convey our overwhelming sense of sorrow for everyone affected by this tragedy, the Klebold said. Our thoughts, prayers, and heartfelt apologies go out to the victims, their families, friends, and the entire community. 
like the rest of the country, we are struggling to understand why this happened and ask that you please respect our privacy during this painful grieving period. The Harrises were more brief. We want to express our heartfelt sympathy to the families of all the victims and to all the community for this senseless tragedy, they wrote. Please say prayers for everyone touched by these terrible events. Dylan's brothers stayed home from work for several days. Byron was nearly three years older than Dylan, but because of Dylan's early enrollment, just two years out of school. He was doing gopher work at an auto dealership, washing cars, shoveling snow, moving inventory around the lot. It was an entry-level job, but man, he's good, a spokesman for the store told the Rocky Mountain News. His employers understood the need for time away. It's shocking for everyone, the spokesman said. We're a family here, and we look out for each other. Our hearts go out to Byron. This kid's great. Catherine Massey Book Club, context of white supremacy. So we'll pick up middle of chapter uh, 20, vacant. Uh, we get ready for next week. Uh, the number again, 605 313 5164 decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email untiljustice at gmail.com. Email number two. Uh, let's see. One of our investors, she, he, excuse me, writes in, uh, Greetings Gus, Chapter 15, uh, page 89, Kathy Harris got scared. Wayne and Kathy were concerned about the repercussions. She explained parents of the victims might retaliate. With all these school shootings, have not seen a lot of information regarding retaliation against parents. Violence, criminal, or civil litigation? Question. Seems like an interesting topic. I guess civil lawsuits would not make a lot of sense if the parents are not very wealthy. Now, I think the case right now that's happening in Michigan with one of the more recent shootings uh, where they are criminally prosecuting the parents, that's happening right now. And I think many, many, many other cases, uh, some of these shooters, the parents have been uh, civilly pursued by the victims, uh, even this case. Number two, page 89. In Eric's room, found a sawed-off shotgun, barrel unspent ammunition on the bed, fingertips, cut-off gloves on the floor, and fireworks and bomb materials on the desk, the dresser. Elsewhere, they discovered a page from the anarchist cookbook packaging for a new gas can. The parents seemed completely unaware of what was going on in their house. I guess it's plausible, or were they lying about what they knew? We've had several folks who said that. They got suspicion, like, mm, I don't know, ignorant white people again? Mm, even ignorant about your own child? Hmm. Number three, Tom was anti-gun, and Dylan agreed with him on that. They wouldn't find any guns or explosives in the house. The cops didn't did find pipe bombs. Tom was shocked. I don't know. I was a parent of a teen. I'd like to think I was more aware of what was in my house, but maybe I'm just fooling myself. Hmm. Could be. Think kids get away with lots, but pipe bombs? Okay. Uh, Fusilade's research. Hostages are a means to fulfill demands. The primary goal is not to harm the hostages. Non-hostage gunmen do not. The humans mean nothing to them. The potential for homicide followed by suicide in many of these cases is very high. 
FBI with hostages negotiations negotiators remain highly visible, make the gunmen work for everything. In non-hostage situations, they keep a low profile. The goal with hostages is to gradually lower expectations. In non-hostage crises, it's to lower emotions. I'll def- I'm definitely going to keep this in mind in the future. Hopefully, it will not be a personally applicable situation. Page 92 to 93. Chris got scared. He knew Eric and Dylan had guns. He knew they had been messing with pipe bombs. For this, Chris called 911. During the 1970s, a 21-year-old white male blew up the police station and himself a few blocks away uh, from where we lived at the time and where I walked by on my way to and from school every day in my hometown. He was under psychiatric care and was going to be committed to an institution by the psychiatrist who he shot and killed prior to the bombing. This fascination with bombs among young white males seems not to be unusual. What can I, they got generations of white people and the anarchist cookbook. So chapter 16, page 96, agent Dwayne Fuselet was also having no luck locating his son. There were many more kids there, but none had been seen. None had seen Brian. I think my information off the web about Fuselet's son being implicated may be wrong. I have not been able to corroborate it from another source. The name of his son in the report I found is wrong. Hmm. Chapter 17. They did have a lot of misinformation around this event. Uh, Chapter 17. Page 105. Lead investigator Kate Baton performed some interviews personally. Everyone learned a lot from hearing about the O.J. Simpson case and John Bonet Ramsey. How often does O.J. come up in a book club selection? Astonishing. What can I say? Uh, 105 to 106, her team also ran a simple search. The shooters were already in the system. Eric and Dylan had been arrested their junior year, caught breaking into a van to steal electric equipment. They entered a 12-month juvenile detention program, performing community service. Um, And they made those threats the 10 pages on the website. White teens get diversion, community service, record expunged. If you are Khalif Browder, you eventually wind up in Rikers Island for three years with no trial. Uh, page 109 to 110, Robert Anderson was scared. This is the old conversation with her and Zach Heckler. She's like, oh, pipe bombs. Did you? Do you think? All that. He says, uh, we write so many, so many racist suspects are either directly or indirectly responsible for Columbine. I suspect this is true for many of these mass school shootings, but are never completely exposed, investigated, or are just covered up. That is standard operating procedure, especially when it is someone classified as white. Where so even Gavin DeBecker says that so many times, so many people knew about this. They had talked about it, written about it, that sort of thing. Uh, page 111 to 112. Klebold spent the afternoon and evening on their porch waiting. They were no longer allowed inside. Their home was now a crime scene. They talked to a lawyer that night. He related a sobering thought. Dylan isn't here anymore for people to hate, he said, so people are going to hate you. I guess we will see if they are retaliated against. Lawsuits. Now, if we say retaliation is lawsuits, well then, hey, stay tuned. Chapter 18. One more bus was promised. Parents looked around. Whose kids would it be? The wait went on endlessly. A woman leapt up. Where is that other bus? She demanded. There was no bus. There was never another bus. Doreen Tomlin said later, it was like false hope 
they gave you. Many parents felt betrayed. Cruelty is universal in the global system of racism, white supremacy, especially for non-white victims. What would they have done if there were a bunch of black parents? Mm. Suspects? Mm -hmm. Number two, page 115, most of the evangelicals reacted differently than the other parents. Lynn Duff was assisting the parents, especially the parents of Isaiah Scholes, the only African-American killed. They were thinking a lot about the other parents, the other families, and responding a lot to other people's needs. They were definitely in pain. The religion of white supremacy refined racist white supremacists practicing racism against non-white victims. We are not racist. We are evangelicals. In quotes. Chapter 19. <clears throat> when, the SWAT finally, when the SWAT team finally freed her, <clears throat> Marjorie ran past two bodies on the way out. She wondered how she had dressed. Her parents would find her in a tank top that suddenly felt sleazy. She borrowed a friend's shirt to cover herself up. Seems like an unnecessary, salacious detail. Hmm. Chapter 20, page 102 to 103. Brian Rorborough demanded his son's body. Danny lay out 28 hours. Reminded me of Mike Brown Jr. laying in the street. I agree. Page 105. Mr. D. He was hoping he wouldn't get lynched. I doubt he thought seriously that he was going to be lynched. Fascinating word choice. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Oh, didn't get that far. We'll have to come back to there for next week. All right. We'll get the folks who dialed in star six one. If you have commentary to share, let's see. Lauren should be with us. We'll nab other hands as I see folks with commentary. Let's see. Lauren, anything stand up? Second audio segment. Um, yes, sir. Uh, first, I, I wanted to say something about that audio segment that you played. Um, when they were talking about the 21-year-old Noah Calderon, they said he had a, I think they said a fascination with white supremacists or something like that, but also they said uh, something like a hatred towards a protected class. I wasn't really sure what that meant. I'm not, I don't know exactly what a protected class is. Um, if they were talking about non-white people and if so, that doesn't make sense. Like, um, white people are the most protected class of people on the planet. Um, let me see. And I also wanted to say there's a lot of interesting stuff at the back of the book, a lot of the writing. They have the letter that Eric wrote after he broke into that van, um, some school assignments that Dylan Klebold typed up, um, stuff like that. So, you know, people should take a look at that because I thought it was interesting. I, too, noted when they were talking about um, it said the way those families reacted was markedly different. It was like 180 degrees from what everybody else was. They were singing. They were praying. They were comforting the other parents especially the parents of Isaiah Scholes. And they put it in brackets, the only African-American killed. Now, <laughs> I don't know. So the author wanted to make sure that we knew this was the black child's parent. And, you know, that has to be a very difficult situation. It's really hard for me to imagine. You know, your son has been killed when he goes to school. And, you know, even after this, these black people think it is necessary to try to 
um, comfort the white people in attendance. Like, that's their job to help white people. Um, I thought that was just super sad on a couple of levels. Uh, right at the beginning of Chapter 20, um, it says there is a photograph, a blonde girl lets out a whale, her head is thrown back, caught in her own hand. Um, so I've been, it just seems like I've been seeing the word blonde a lot. I don't know if it's just me or, um, I'm paying attention to it. I actually searched it and they said it's only in the book six times, which, man, it seems like I have heard it about that many times already. Um, so I'm not really sure, but it, it seems like a lot, um, a lot of description of the hair actually, but it's uh, typically the description of white people's hair. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm just saying I thought about it. Um, I, too, noted that when it says Mr. D would settle for polite applause, he was hoping he wouldn't get lynched. Did he deserve to be? <sighs> Obviously, lynching just, you know, it came up in the last book. No fit footnote. I think, I don't know. I don't think he was going to get lynched. I really don't understand that word choice. Um, there was another part where it said the Harrises and the Klebolds both hired attorneys. They had good reason. The presumption of guilt quickly landed on their shoulders. Investigators didn't expect to charge them, but the public did. National polls taken shortly after the attack would identify a... Blue, hmm. I think? Oh, no. All sorts of culprits contributing to the tragedy. Violent movies, video games, goth culture, lax gun laws, bullies, and Satan. Eric did not make the list. Dylan didn't either. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the author was trying to express. Maybe he was just trying to say people didn't hold Eric Harris and Dylan Clebo responsible for the killing. And, you know, listening to this book, the way he's talking about, especially um, Dylan Clebo, I, I can see that. But it also made me think of just the way people talk about racism. And, you know, they'll talk about so many other things. Well, you know, they'll talk about systemic racism instead of system of white supremacy. So say elites, trans people, gays, mental health, ignorance, so many things get discussed and talked about, but usually not white people. And I just, you know, keeping the focus where it should be, I don't know, that's pretty important. And, and that's what that made me think about. Um, that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Keeping the focus where it should be. Very important in the system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Much obliged, Lauren. Let's see here. Scroll back. Last bus. Chapter 18. Get some of my notes as well. Okay. I have no idea what a liberal Jew is. And I mean, you can break that up. Liberal? Question mark. Jew? Question mark. Eh? 
Uh, much obliged for Claire. I had to go back and reread to even grasp that Cullen Rhoda he includes here because I don't think anybody here has been marked as white in the three segments that we've read thus far. But we make sure these folks, Isaiah Shoals parents get marked as black i thought it was that people were comforting them and that's not what it says this is they were seeing or the way that those families reacted was markedly different she said it was like 180 degrees from where everybody else was they were singing they were praying they were comforting the other parents especially the parents of isaiah shoals the only african-american killed the now I'm even having to rethink. They were singing. Yeah, let let me get the whole two paragraph. Okay, so Sherstone told them that most of the dead kids had been in the library. John always went to the library. Doreen said, "I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt sick." She felt sadness, but not surprised. Doreen was an evangelical Christian and believed the Lord had been preparing her for the news all afternoon. Most of the evangelicals reacted differently than the other parents. The press had been cleared from the area, but Lynn Duff was assisting the families as a Red Cross volunteer, a liberal Jew from San Francisco. The way that those families reacted was markedly different, she said. It was like 180 degrees from where everybody else was. They were singing. They were praying. They were comforting the other parents especially the parents of Isaiah Shoals, the only African-American killed. Hmm. I'm having to rethink now. I'm going to have to poll. All right, so Lauren, she says she thinks that it's the African-American parents are doing the comforting. The first time when I heard it, I thought it was that the people were going to make sure that they were comforting them, especially that they were the ones getting comfort, especially. Uh, when Lauren said she thought that this was the other way around, I was like, oh man, I misread it. That was what I thought. Then I went back and read it again. I said, oh no, maybe, ooh, e. <laughs> so I don't know. You think, hearing this a few times, now that I've read it, you've heard it again and all that, we have, I'll see other people think too, you think this is Isaiah Scholl's parents. They are the ones that are going and comforting the other parents and singing and praying. You think that's the way it's written out by Dave Cullen? Well, I definitely think that the black parents were comforting the white people. It seems like they were saying all of the so-called evangelicals were praying and singing. And usually the people referred to as evangelicals are classified as white. Um, most, uh, most black people I know are just super religious, and they don't call them evangelicals. They're just regular Negroes. I will say, and think about it. I mean, okay. what's more likely, black, um, black people comforting white people or white people comforting black people in this situation? What, what's more likely if you were uncertain of what it says? You took the words out of my mouth, metaphor, but that literally was about what I was about to say, that my, what I see generally is that is the way we are conditioned. That's gone with the wind, right? That's the way it's been for out of plantation days you know we are the ones that are supposed to be going around and i was it took it right out of my mouth stated it better i didn't even need the gone with the wind reference forget that um i don't know i'm looking at it again they were singing talking about the evangelical parent they were singing they were praying 
they were comforting the other parents, especially the parents of hmm because it's at the end of the sentence it's they were comforting the other parents, especially the parents. like because it's there, I associate them with the end with the people that are being comforted, and I could even see that with this like ooh we they haven't explained what happened to Isaiah shows, oh yeah, I could see this being one where oh my God, ooh. Lord Jesus, we don't want, they're there. We're not all racist. Lord Jesus, get this on camera. We're not racist. Woo. We, what, what, what can we do? What can, and Al Sharpton came to Colorado. So yeah, like I said, oh my God. Yes. Yes. Knowing where this goes, I could see a whole lot of reasons why racists would want to comfort Isaiah Show's parents. We will have to pay attention as we uh, proceed because we hadn't get the details. We didn't get the details of what happened. Now that is, Man, I've been sitting here waiting, waiting to get the dick. Oh, man. Foreshadowing. Uh, So we have to put a pin in that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm having to. I originally thought they were the ones that were receiving the comfort. Not that that, we'll have to see if they're evangelicals or not. Let's see if they're evangelicals. We'll see if if they're not evangelicals, then that would take them out of the group that's doing the comfort. We'll have to do some research. Uh, Let's see other folks who are with us so now everybody you have to answer that question first so when you heard red did you think Isaiah Shoals the only African American killed did you think they were participating in the singing praying comforting that was going on more so than the others or did you think that they were receiving the attention hugs whatever else from the white people present and then whatever else you need to share uh, let's see Mama C and or non Clemson dad woke baby and Z's mom. Can I be heard? Mama C. Yes. When I, um, when I read that passage um, and then, you know, I kept going back to it. Initially I thought it was the black family that was being comforted because that's how it's written in English. They're the object. Like they're the people, the action is being done to. But based on how I know black people, black people act and respond to trauma, um, I would agree that the um, uh, the Shoals family were likely the people comforting the white people, and they probably already knew that their son was gone um, because he was one of the few black students at that school. So they probably already prepared themselves for the worst prepared themselves for a traumatic outcome. And so they were, you know, going out of their way to comfort the white people. And that would make them happy and feel like good, good Christians and all that. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of comments based on the first, the first um, part of tonight's broadcast. Uh, I, I saw a lot of similarities also between the absolute madness book with Joey 22 Um like white supremacy conditions and traumatizes uh, children from a very young age to see gore. For example, Patrick Ireland's sister saw his bloody body on camera, um, but she didn't recognize him. So once she realized that that was her brother, it probably like traumatized her um, a lot. And the same thing in the Joey 22 book, um, the son of the man who was killed um, by Joseph Christopher, 
Uh, he saw his father's lifeless body being taken away on a, stre- uh, a stretcher, and he immediately recognized him, I think, by his hand. Um, there was a lot of discussion on who was cooperating with investigators and who wasn't cooperating. Um, like in the, the Joseph Christopher book, the girlfriend, the older woman, she refused to cooperate with investigators. And in this book, uh, Robin Anderson was uncooperative. And then the two friends of Dylan and Eric, they were, they were split. Like one was cooperative and shared all the details of what he knew. And then the other one was um, very reticent about divulging information about Eric and Dylan. Um, white people, it's normal white behavior for them to be fascinated with guns and shooting. Um, one of their friends, you know, was shooting, I think, using the automatic uh, AK, um, AK, whatever, 52, um, AK-47, that's what it is. AK-47 in some bowling pins, but he didn't think anything of it. And then, bam, everything comes together. Uh, same thing um, with Joseph Christopher. You know, his uh, his father had a basement full of military gear and guns and all that. Lastly, um, the Christophers were blamed and stalked on their street by the media and people who were fascinated by um, the killings, just as Dylan, uh, Cleball's family. They were hated since Dylan was no longer present to be hated. And the documentary, I ended up watching the documentary um, that Gus shared um, on William Powell, the author of The Anarchist Cookbook, who died in 2016. Millions of copies sold, I believe, he was less, based on what I saw in the documentary, I believe he was less motivated by money, and he claimed he only made like forty to $50,000 off of that book before selling all of his rights to the, the person who published, um, published the book. Uh, but I feel like he was maybe less motivated by making money off of the book and more motivated by the infamy even if he didn't foresee that happening when he wrote the book and published the book at age 19, he became infamous as, you know, providing all this military knowledge to the masses. Um, and a lot of these mass killers, that's what they're going after. They're going after being famous. Um, and with that, I will, I will end my share. We got contribution from Woke Baby as well to verify that, yes, I am not asleep. Much obliged, Mama C. Uh, so she then, using syntax, grammar, she thought the black family was being comforted. That's what I thought initially. Have to pay attention as we proceed through the text. Uh, Z's mom getting our mommy's participation in the book club for the day. Can I be first? Yes, ma'am. Um, greetings. So I I thought that um, it, they were saying that Isaiah's family had, was being comforted, but um, I could see how it could be written in a way where you, it, it would be hard to interpret. Um, I found an article about um, 
well, from, I guess it was an interview with his mom. And um, she, after the, after he was killed, they moved to Texas. And she said about being in Texas, she said, it's a different atmosphere down here. We're surrounded by some loving people. In Colorado, people acted like we pulled the trigger. Don't get me wrong. There were some loving people in Colorado, but things were just too tense. So I'm assuming from her saying that, that maybe Warren is correct that no one was comforting them, and they might have been trying to comfort other people because that's kind of how, unfortunately, black people are programmed to do. Because it seems from here that people, I mean, that's very interesting that she said. In Colorado, people acted like we pulled the trigger when her own child died. Um, so it's a really interesting article, actually. They talk about, they said people in Colorado called them money hungry because they filed a wrongful death lawsuit and they criticized the whole county for being racist. And they actually said that they think that um, Columbine in and of itself was a racist or like a, a shooting that was a racist attack. So I think that's really, really interesting as well. Um, in terms of, the only thing I wanted to comment was that I thought it was interesting about the Cleveland and getting a lawyer. I think it's so interesting how differently the Cleveland versus the Harrises have approached the situation and that the Cleveland family is like, really put put themselves out there and have seemed to gain some sort of, I don't know if they realized how much money they were going to have to be spending and they decided, hey, let me write a memoir and make some money off of this because there's going to be a lot of money that I'm going to have to spend. But they seem to really put themselves out there versus the Harrises who uh, it's very hard to find any information about them or or interviews about them. You can even find um, interviews with Dylan's older brother. Um, but I thought it was interesting that they had gotten lawyers. I was reading um, the mom's memoir, and she said that the dad got called a lawyer before they even knew that Dylan was, like, for sure, before they had confirmation that Dylan was the killer. Or So that was very interesting, and that there was one part in there, I think there was David Cullen talks about how the victims' families tried to find little bits of normalcy in their lives. It reminded me of, in her memoir, she says that I think the day after she finds out her, or the day after the shooting or the, the massacre, she goes to the hair salon to get her hair done because she already had an appointment and she calls her lawyer to say, hey, is it okay if I get my hair done at the hair salon because I still have an appointment? And he advises her that, yeah, she should take care of herself because she's going through a lot. I just thought it just reminded me of that part. Um, and I agreed with what the, what the callers had said earlier. I believe that Eric Harris's family was very much aware of everything that he was doing because he had the it did not when they described where all the weapons were in his room, it's very obvious that he was not hiding them. I mean they're laying out on the bed and it's 
it doesn't seem like he, because I mean, if you think about it, if they would have opened the door, or like, let's say they came home from work early and they opened the door and they saw that, they would have called the police and he wouldn't have been able to commit these crime or this crime or massacre these people. So I believe that maybe they were not aware that he was going to go to the school and kill all these people, but I think they're very much aware that he had, like, weaponry or he was using them and he was, like, he had a, a, a large amount of them. Um, I think that's all I have to say for now. Much obliged, Z's mom. Uh, again, Al Sharpton did come to Colorado. Have to see if all that is uh, detailed as we proceed, as well as the details of what happened to Isaiah Shoals. We'll put a pin in that. Incidentally, same thing. I think for this one, we would solve it just with. Uh, are the Shoals evangelicals? If they are not, then that would take them out of the group that was doing all that, and that would put them back in the what I thought it was to begin with. They would be the receiving of the comfort and care. So we can sleuth were the evangelicals. Yay, nay. That should be an easy one. Uh, I guess my quick notes. Al Sharpton to come. Uh, even got the anarchist cookbook in there. Let's see. Liberal Jew... Singing and Praying, Chapter 19, The Self-Care. Now, that would be another one if Dylan Klebold was black. I'm going to go get my hair tightened. <laughs> like, ooh-wee. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and incidentally, since the way that the narrative that we're hearing, right, Dylan Klebold is depressed, suicidal, He's just going along. He was duped by old psychopath Eric Harris. Dylan Klebold's parents, they can just go out and he was depressed. He didn't fit in. Eric Harris, no count demon comes in. Hoodwinks, bamboozles our child into all of this, right? You can present that. Eric Harris, we have a psychopath. They have nothing to say. That's something to keep in mind as well. Let's see. Vacant. Uh, there's a photograph, a blonde girl. I think Lauren said something about this. We heard all that about Negroes with kinky hair for months in Brazil. This book, there's been so much talk about blonde-haired white women in particular. But even I said that metaphor uh, when they were talking about Sheriff Stone uh, as compared to their other, other white spokesperson uh, where he had the blow-dried look uh, as though there was something inauthentic. Uh, about you know his presentation even with the hair again but there's so many hair references I've really not heard anything in the way that the hair of non-white people and black people in particular was described so frequently this book doesn't talk about hair as much but man there are lots of references to blonde haired white women and the hair of white people in general uh, let's see again the affluence and wealth that they have when they're talking about uh Danny, one of the victims, uh, Danny was a natural. He loved cars. He loved sound. He was great with the PC and had an ear for pitch. He liked to mess around with computer programs and was promising to take the business in a new direction. And he knew how to behave uh, that just all of that. Again, this is an era where most people don't have a computer and he is great with the PC 
and computer programming. Like, dang. Okay, but even that, like the psychology class and the BMW and everything, and I'm already plotting my business strategy? Like, wow. Not ignorant white people, not by far. Uh, let's see. Hoping he wouldn't get lynched. We talked about that when he goes to talk to the students. I will say in terms of culpability, in terms of, you know, we already talked about the parents and what have you getting a attorney. These folks do have a criminal record. Uh, a whole lot of folks got some scorn for their, a whole lot of white people were admonished and received quite a bit of scorn for their conduct uh, through various intervals, even before the shooting in all of this some of this we've heard about they had criminal records and such hopefully we'll go into more detail about all that as we proceed but lots more to come there many reasons why i said man it is disgraceful that bowling for columbine is the only source of information that we i we had for this event that is so critically important to world events over the last 25 years plus we'll continue we'll be here tomorrow 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy you don't want to be like vodka Dylan Klebold reputation for drinking as a teenager like come on creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing up thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.